Welcome to School of Everything Else. Hamilton. The Battle of Yorktown. 1781. Monsieur Hamilton. Monsieur Lafayette. In command where you belong. Are you saying no sweater? We're finally on the field. We've had quite a run. Immigrants. We get the job done. So what happens if we win? I go back to France. I bring freedom to my people if I'm given the chance. We'll be with you when you do. Go, lead your men. I'll see you on the other side. Till we meet again. I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. And I'm not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. Till the world turns upside down. Till the world turns upside down. I am like a memory this is where it gets me on my feet the enemy ahead of me if this is the end of me at least i have a friend with me weapon in my hand a command of my men with me then i remember my allies is expecting me not only that my allies is expecting we gotta go gotta get the job done gotta start a new nation gotta need my son take the bullets out to run the bullets out to run we move on the cover and we move as one through the night we have one shot to live another day we cannot let a straight gunshot give us away Fight up close, seize the moment and stay in it It's either that or meet the business end of a bayonet The code word is Rochambeau, dig me Rochambeau You have your orders now, go man, go And so the American experiment begins With my friends all scattered to the winds Lawrence is in South Carolina, redefining bravery We'll never be free until we end slavery When we finally drive the British away Lafayette is there waiting in Chesapeake Bay How do we know that this plan would work? We had a spy on the that's right. Hercules Mulligan! Tell a spine on the British government. I take the measurements, information, and then I smuggle it. Huh? To my brother's revolutionary covenant. I'm running with the sons of liberty, and I am loving it. See, that's what happens when you up against the ruffians. We in the shit now, somebody's gotta shovel it. Hercules Mulligan, I need no introduction. When you knock me down, I get the fuck back up again. <laughs> For those unfamiliar with this, it is a Broadway musical about the life of one of the unsung founding fathers of America, framed as a hip-hopera. Now, this sounds like a gimmick, but this extraordinarily driven and determined man's life is a journey from rags to not only riches, but the opportunity to help craft the fledgling nation of America, the conflict and egos involved with that and the family drama, and the rap, hip-hop, R&B and jazz that makes up every minute of this stage time is wholly appropriate and exquisitely crafted to deliver information and emotion the whole way through. It is Shakespearean levels of being able to deliver an epic history to the masses in the most palatable way possible. And this is an unexpected show for us, much like Mad Max Fury Road. It came out of nowhere and we just had to talk about it. Frankly, we should have done one on La La Land at the time, but that one's coming soon, as it's as soon as it's on Blu-ray. As are Rogue One, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Beasts, and Moana. Do not worry, they're coming. Stop tweeting me about it. They're coming, okay? <laughs> this episode is about a musical we haven't seen. We couldn't have seen this musical without two tickets to New York City, although it is coming to London later this year and is booked up already. I first heard about this around the time I finished up the not-dissimilar Arlington 
story. Several people figured that I would like Hamilton, but since we couldn't see the musical anywhere and the average length of time between Broadway and a movie adaptation, I counted this, it's about 18 years, that left us unsure of how to pursue it. But after listening to the Moana soundtrack with lyrics by Hamilton's creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, back to back a hundred times, I found the whole thing on YouTube as a soundtrack and took a listen. And then I bought the whole thing. It grabs you that fast. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I keep saying Moana. It's Moana. I devoured the show and then sat down the same day with Sharon, watched the HD Birchwood Fireplace video on Netflix, recommended, and listened to the whole two hours, 23 minutes through our sound bar. We also did that again today with Lyra, <laughs> just to brush up on it, folks. It is amazing. To the minority of listeners who have heard Hamilton or had the great fortune to see it, the response will be, yeah, it is. And to everyone else, before you go listen, stay for the first half of this show. We will explore and explain the world and the characters so that you will better understand what is going on during the unseen play. The more you know, the more powerfully evocative it will be. So there's going to be a spoiler section near the end covering most of the second of two acts, so you should break off there and go listen to the whole thing first before returning to catch the end of our show. And it goes without saying, we will be playing highlighted songs in their entirety. This isn't like a Disney musical with lots and lots of talk and the emotional moments evolving into songs. This is like Les Miserables, where everybody sings everything all the time. Only unlike Les Miserables, Hamilton isn't absolutely ghastly. And and even people who don't like musicals, like Hamilton. Now at the dawn of revolution, one young man will give up everything for a woman he's met through a fence. Now that we've scared away everyone who loves Lesbian Brothers, <laughs> I'm sure the actual on-screen, on-stage musical is fantastic. The film is tedious. Uh, with me is Sharon Shaw, my wife and co-host. Hello. You will remember from We're Back, A Dinosaur Story. You will remember Mr. Harrison Brockwell. Young man, I'm from Virginia, so watch your mouth. <laughs> from the Deadpool episode and upcoming Highlander shows, Mr. Jesse Ferguson. Alexander. Aaron Burr, sir. From the Star Trek shows, Big Trouble in Little China, Rocky Horror, and Hannibal, Mr. Karu Nagisa. Eyes up, wise up, rise up. And from the Transformers episode, Mr. Andy Rodriguez. I couldn't say no to this. Nice. <laughs> So we're going to go through the events of this roughly chronologically, highlighting a dozen characters with a dozen songs. Bear in mind as you listen that while this is a stylized history with some dramatic license and time compression, every one of these characters was a real living historical figure with their own Wikipedia page, I checked. And pretty much everything important <laughs> happened in some form or another. We'll also be noting a couple of historical inaccuracies as it goes along, just so people don't listen and go, well, this is absolutely true history. But at the same time, we're not going to be persnickety and go, well, actually, because, um, well, there's, there's many, many reasons. and We'll go into those later. <laughs> I question George Washington's understanding of hip hop structure, young man. Yes. Um, <laughs> So with each person at each stage of the story, we must ask, who were they and what parts do they play in this story? Hamilton. So we'll start with Alexander, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. His name is Alexander Hamilton. Okay, so. <laughs> Did you want to do this so that we would keep saying your name over and over again? <laughs> I have been rumbled. <laughs> 
Uh, so uh, what can you guys tell me about Alexander Hamilton in a way that will enlighten people at home? Uh, I mean, but we're, we're going to be basically explaining his life story anyway. I suppose, what was Alexander's life like up to the point where the story starts? Because it starts in 1776. And he was born in... 1755 although there was some contention that originally he said he was born in 57 but i believe that was because he wanted to appear younger at college uh hamilton uh, was born in the caribbean he lost his mother at a very early age he was very poor but he was also a very talented writer and that's kind of got him enough cachet among the people there that they wanted to send him to new york to study and Sort of, you know, make homegrown boy uh, go out there and make us proud type mm. thing. Uh, I, I believe it said that his father was a Scotsman who would have been traveling through the uh, the Caribbean at the time. His mother was apparently a prostitute uh, of possibly mixed race, but uh, apparently there was some French in there. It's made very clear that um, he is, like so many Americans back then, effectively an immigrant, someone coming to America who was from outside America to make a life for themselves, which that threads through the whole production. And there is it, it's very sharp, especially this year, that the idea that immigrants built this country. When you listen to Hamilton, it's easy to believe in the vision of America that it presents um and it's you know it is not in any way critical of america it is very much pro of a concept of america Mm. and you know it's easy to go back to that and say this is what we can be it's it's like watching star trek it's like the Mm. american revolution version of star trek in many ways or captain america uh or captain america yeah exactly it's this is what we could be this is what we should aspire to be and the way that this is written, it's very easy to believe it when you're listening to it, mm. even if the rest of the world makes it hard to believe otherwise. Mm. And uh, part of what makes it work so well is that, quite frankly, and I'm going to try not to get too into the weeds and the music theory of this, but the oh, no, music no. if you want to this... do music theory, go for it. Oh, good, because I've got four pages here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like, just you just wrote nonstop, didn't you? Pretty much, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why do you write? Like I'm running out of time. Why do you write? You're running out of time. Yeah, if you look at the musical structure of it, it is so intertwined and so well put together. It's like the musical equivalent of looking at the molecular structure of a diamond. Mm. That is how well put together it is, and how much it plays with us emotionally. I, I'll like I said, I'll try to do this in at least in a way that makes sense. So when we get to the songs that are pertinent, I'll point things out. But Oh man, I I could talk about this. Do we have a six-hour podcast, seven-hour podcast? We do not. We're gonna have to focus. You can't just stand there like Hamilton and talk for four hours while we all go listless. <laughs> um, I, mean, I would be fascinated the whole time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The uh, production this most reminds me of actually is. Has anyone else seen Amadeus? Yes. No. Okay. Um, If if folks, if you are Hamilton fans and you haven't yet seen Amadeus, see Amadeus. It is another story about the life of a troubled genius and about the man who envied him. Uh, It's uh, Salieri is a so-so composer whose work grows ever dimmer as his life goes on. Whereas Mozart, who died too young, his music becomes more and more 
soaring and majestic as people listen to it. How well are you trained in music? I know a little. I, I studied it in my youth. Where? Here in Vienna. Ah, then you must know this. can't say that I do. It was a very popular tune in its day. I wrote it. How about this? This one brought down the house when we played it first. Well? I regret it is not too familiar. Can you recall no melody of mine? I was the most famous composer in Europe. I wrote 40 operas alone. Yeah. What about this one? Yes, I know that. Oh, that's charming. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wrote that. I didn't. That was Mozart. Wolfgang. Amadeus Mozart. Now, ironically, Alexander Hamilton kind of faded in history, and this show has repositioned him as more of an uh, important founding father, which has caused some contention among historians who are taking America as, uh, you know, rather than just focusing on the white, couple of white men who built it, is to everybody else, especially of the different ethnicities who built it. But Salieri was, as I said, envious of Mozart, and ultimately... Uh, in the musical, directly contributes to his death because of this rivalry. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's his own battle with mediocrity, standing at the sidelines of, of somebody who's really passionate. And watching Hamilton, well, listening to Hamilton playing out, I would imagine watching it makes it even more exquisite. It is like one of Mozart's compositions, one of the operas, just, just watching all of those things flow together. There isn't a single note out of place. Everything is, is exactly correct to be where it is, but it has that organic flow, and it, it, it doesn't feel, and this is the other thing, it doesn't feel manufactured to be, to just hit the public in the fields. There are some times when you, when you, you feel like, okay, I'm being like coerced here. This is clearly a passion project from Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he'd, direct, he'd uh, been behind one major theatrical production before The Heights, uh, which is uh, set in a, a barrio in, um, I, I believe, Brooklyn. and Washington, isn't it? Oh, Washington, sorry. Oh, Washington Heights in Washington Heights, New yeah. York. Oh, there you go. It's the top part of Manhattan. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I have family there okay uh and uh, so that he was relatively small scale then he went to the white house and he was supposed to be singing something from the heights but he was already thinking of uh the alexander hamilton musical did anybody else watch that white house poetry jam session yes, yes. oh yeah oh, it's, it's great it's wonderful yeah. seeing the confusion in the crowd's face turned to pure joy by the end of it yeah. oh it's so good my god um, I'm, I'm thrilled uh, the White House called me uh, tonight uh, because uh, I'm actually working 
on a hip-hop album. Uh, it's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip-hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. Um, he, was, uh, he was born a, a penniless orphan uh, in St. Croix of illegitimate birth, um, became George Washington's right-hand man, uh, became Treasury Secretary, caught beef with every other founding father, uh, and all on the strength of his writing, I think he embodies uh, the word's ability to make a difference. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be doing the first song from that tonight. I'm accompanied by Tony and Grammy-winning music director Alex Lacamoire. Uh, anything you need to know, I'll be playing uh, Vice President Aaron Burr. Uh, and snap along if you like. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar the ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14 they placed him in charge of the trade and charter and every day while slaves were being slaughtered or carted away across the the waves our Hamilton kept his guard up inside he was longing for something to be a part of the brother was ready to beg steal borrow a barter and a hurricane came devastation reigned and our man saw his future drip dripping down the drain put a pencil to his temple connected it to his brain and he wrote his first refrain a testament to his pain well the word got around they said this kid is insane man took up a collection just to send him to the mainland get your education don't forget from whence you came and the world is gonna know your name what's your name man alexander hamilton his name is alexander hamilton and there's a million things he hasn't done but just you wait just you was 10 his father split full of it debt ridden two years later see alex and his mother bedridden half dead sitting in their own sick the scent thick and alex got better but his mother went quick moved in with a cousin the cousin committed suicide left him with nothing but ruined pride something new inside a voice saying alex you gotta fend for yourself he started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf there would have been nothing left to do for someone less astute He would have been dead or destitute without a cent of restitution Started working, clerking for his late mother's landlord Trading sugar cane and rum and other things he can't afford Scamming for every book he can get his hands on Planning for the future, see him now as he stands on the bow of a ship Headed for a new land in New York, you can be a new man The ship is in the harbor now, see if you can spot him Another immigrant coming up from the bottom His enemies destroyed his rep America forgot him and me I'm the damn fool that shot him Alexander Hamilton We were waiting in the weeds for you You could never back down You always had to speak your mind But Alexander Hamilton We could never take your deeds from you in our cowardice and our shame We will try to destroy your name But the world will never be the same Alexander Yeah, I'm the damn genius that shot him 
Thank you. When Obama heard about, you know, I'm going to make a sing a song, a rap song about Alexander Hamilton, he was like, well, good luck. But <laughs> in, in the meantime, Barack and especially Michelle, it would seem, have become enchanted with Hamilton. And so watching she all of this. She was snapping along the whole time. Oh, my God. Yep. She loves it. And um, watching the, um, the reactions to it and then them, them talking about it, it's, it's so sad. It's so bittersweet watching that stuff now that we've traded one of the best presidents ever for literally the worst man in history. Little possibly bit, apart from Hitler and Stalin. A little bit like Pol Pol. listening Possibly. to George Washington's goodbye song. Yeah. Last time. Teach him how to say Everybody I know listened to that at, on the 20th. Did you guys see the video of the cast of Hamilton performing one last time at the White House, like, the day before they left? Yep. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's devastating. It's yeah. I have never cried that much at Hamilton, and I lose it at It's Quiet Uptown every single time I listen to it. <laughs> but when I, when I watched that video, I was, I was gone. I was inconsolable for about an hour. I, yeah. I have listened to the whole thing three times now, and generally I start crying somewhere around the middle of my shot and don't stop to the end. Hmm. <laughs> we, uh, I am the, a wuss when By the time we'd musicals. finished with the, uh, the, the screening with Lyra just uh, this evening, there was... A small sea of tissue paper balled up hunks on the floor <laughs> from all of us. It was uh, quite a bonding exercise. But but she loved it. I mean, she she was very patient. She sat through all of it, and I explained who everyone was, where everyone was, was coming from. She and... kept getting up and boogieing to the livelier songs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she had a particular taste for King George III. Who, oh, who yeah. doesn't? <laughs> what was the way she described his song? Um, funny in a horrible terrible way <laughs> <laughs> which i thought was quite an accurate summation okay so um to, to bring you back to the actual uh, play as it is uh, alexander hamilton turns up in 1776 in new york city in the, city the, the whole song is in new york you can be a new man this is the whole like he was like right let's write about it set it in uh, new york make it feel alive make it feel relevant and, you know, obviously, since it's screening, it's screening, it's playing in New York. There's that, you know, wild sense of, yes, it happened right here in these very streets going on right there. Which, Especially when we get to the cabinet meetings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shortly after this, he meets Aaron Burr, uh, a man that uh, they ever so slightly exaggerate and refocus the amount of times they turn up in each other's lives. It, it, they definitely cross paths repeatedly, but they make this the Salieri-Mozart relationship that they are mm -hmm. always in each other's faces. And it's not really a kind of a, a like a, a, an angry, aggressive rivalry, but they do poke at each other the whole time. And I All think right. Aaron Burr has a lot less sense of humor about it than uh, Hamilton does. There's, there's some really cool stuff going on musically here that I absolutely love. Um, yes. And first of all, it starts out in B minor. It starts out in a minor key. And that's going to become important once we get to the end of all of this, because I'll bring it back around back then. But it's important that it starts there. Um, but the thing is that everybody is singing in F sharp, the fifth of the 
chord. You see, I like playing in F major, but I like singing in F sharp. F sharp. Until you get to Hamilton, who sings in the tonic, who sings in B minor. So we Alexander Hamilton. That bit? My name is Alexander Hamilton. He's the first one who is actually in a kind of minor chord in this minor scale and whatnot. But there's a particular chord progression um, to Alexander Hamilton that basically goes B minor, D, F sharp, G. And You're going to have change- to give us those notes. <laughs> uh, it, I don't actually know the notes. I can hear the... Uh, intervals, but I'm having trouble with the notes itself. Dun, 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 that whole bit. Mm-hmm. Whenever uh, Aaron Burr starts singing at the beginnings of things, how does a bastard? Orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar. All of those, that chord progression that you just heard, mm-hmm. keeps coming up over and over again and every time it comes up it's to drive the narrative forward basically it's a fast forward button Mm. and you'll hear it time and time again in this yeah and again this is going to come back at the very end of the play that particular uh, chord progression but it gets used over and over again that specifically Um, hits uh, aaron at the very end when uh, he's uh, been stymied by hamilton for the last time and he's like right that is the last straw how does Hamilton, an arrogant, immigrant, orphan, bastard, poor son, somehow endorse Thomas Jefferson, his enemy, a man he's despised since the beginning, just to keep me from winning? Exactly. Also, if you look at the um, that just first Aaron Burr's first stanza there, I love all the rhyming going on because it starts out with all of these interior slant rhymes. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and orphan and so, whore and Scotsman dropped in forgotten spot in Prove and then the second half of Providence becomes a rhyme with impoverished and then you have a perfect rhyme to end the uh, stands at squalor and scholar, which still don't aren't are just homophones. They're not spelled the same. But they sound the same. You could interpret the fact that this refrain keeps turning up and over and over again, that this whole story has flashed through Burr's head at the end when he makes his decision to challenge him. I, I think that's a possibility. Um, the other thing I'm going to argue as we go through is that uh, since by the end we find out that Eliza became one of Hamilton's major biographers, the fact that her and Angelica's themes keep popping up in songs that they're not in mm-hmm. suggests that she is telling this story. Mm-hmm. That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. I'm getting nervous. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur, sir. He handles the financials. You punched the burr, sir. Yes, I wanted to do what you did, graduate in two and join the revolution. He looked at me like I was stupid. I'm not stupid. So how'd you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? It was my parents' dying wish before they passed. You're an orphan. 
course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there was a war, then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Can I buy you a drink? That would be nice. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. Talk less. What? Smile more. <laughs> Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. You can't be serious. You wanna get ahead. Yes. Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead. Aye, yo, 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 what time is it? Showtime! Like I said. Showtime, showtime, yo! I'm John Lawrence in the place to be. A two pints of Sam Adams, but I'm working on three. Ha! Those red coats don't want it with me, cause I will pack chick a black. A lot of what uh, makes Aaron Burr foil to Alexander Hamilton is how the both of them end up viewing legacy in terms of their life stories. Uh, for Alexander Hamilton, legacy is something that is he has to create for himself. He has nothing to build off of. You know, his mother was a prostitute who died when he was young. His father left him when he was a little child. Whereas Burr is kind of, he has all this history on his shoulders that he needs to live up to. And it's kind of reflects everything about their philosophies, how Aaron Burr plays everything safe and how Hamilton has to continue to climb and climb. Where Hamilton is focused on creating a legacy because he doesn't have one. Aaron Burr, his entire focus is maintaining the legacy he already has. So his whole philosophy is playing it safe, doing everything he can to make sure that he's on the winning side, regardless of whether or not it might may or may not be the right side. They come back to that time and time again. Hamilton is saying, we need to do something big we need to do something important this is monumental and aaron burr is saying well let's wait a minute let's see how things play out he's much more on the fence about everything mm. i was go i was about to add actually the um one of the distinctions between the two of them um you've got burr who is so terrified of doing the wrong thing a lot of the time that he ends up uh, what he believes waiting patiently and observing to see which is the right way to jump but by the time he actually is in a position to make his decision the moment's passed and it's too late and his decision is actually not going to make that much of a difference and as you say it's it, it's I think a lot of it is because he has more to lose or he feels like he's got something that he could lose he's seen lost through his life that's the whole point of of wait for it you know he's he's seen people pass out of his life and and disappear and he doesn't want the same thing to happen to him whereas as far as uh hamilton's concerned seeing people pass out of his life is 
it seems to have left him with this feeling that he doesn't have much more to lose, so he might as well go for it. And so he does, over and over again, he makes the, the impetuous choice that ends up gaining him a great deal. And that, I think, in the, the final analysis is what Burr is so envious of, that, that it's not just what Hamilton gets, it's the fact that he can act on his own impulses. It's also the relationship with death. Uh, Hamilton constantly, practically fantasizes about death. He, uh, he says uh-huh. at least three times uh, he uh, thinks of death so much it feels more like a memory. I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. This is where it gets me. In, in that he has made death part of his ma- uh, motivation the whole way through his life. So he writes like he's running out of time. Whereas Burr, the one who lived, lived to a ripe old age... And and basically was disgraced and sort of passed away. And then there was a lot of, you know, he, he moved far out west and, and, and he did not have that full, tangible, historical life that he wanted so much because he didn't have that relationship with death. Mm. He just wanted to sustain, keep going, stand for nothing. Yeah, I yeah. do love the fact that they there's a... An, a sense of observation in what goes on on stage as well, which, again, is this this sort of almost Shakespearean thing of the, the characters speaking directly to the audience and observing the fact that they're in a play, that they're telling a story. Burr's allusions to the knowledge that he is the villain of the piece. Mm. Ultimately, because of who this story is about and how it's presented, he's going to come across as the bad guy, and he knows that. Even though, strictly speaking, in history, he's not a... He is not not a bad guy, guy just because he is a bad guy. he is most famous (laughs) for for this one thing. Mm. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, all of those really fantastic things, that good things that John Wilkes Booth did up until that point. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately, yeah, the... Nobody ever talks about his charity work. (laughs) (laughs) He was so good at crochet. Actually, that point. You know, uh, okay, right. Uh, we've got like five people all lined up at the same time here. Um, okay, <laughs> even so. though there's only four of us. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, We've got six. So, sound off like you got a pair. Who actually wants to say something right now, Karen? I, I like that everybody kept pointing out how unsettling and how unsettled and how unsure he seems to be. Because again, musically, it's that's supported musically. Uh, there's a particular chord progression that always accompanies Aaron Burr, no matter what key it's in. It's always Is the it first dun, chord. Dun, dun. That's that one. the one, and that last one is a minor third, or the minor three. It's it's the minor three chord, and the thing is that the minor three chord doesn't resolve neatly to anywhere it doesn't go anywhere it's basically a musical dead end so anything that follows it up always feels a little bit off it feels unsure it's in the same way that burr lets other people define him Mm. the chord sort of lets whatever happens next or whoever pops in next define it Mm. one thing and i think sharon you'd appreciate this is also you can kind of see that in a way and again musically this is i feel this way musically burr is hamilton's shadow self um, whenever he does his talk less, smile more thing, what you hear in the background is a reggae beat tying it to the Caribbean where Hamilton's from. Whoa. But also, yeah. But also, um, Burr, whenever you hear him, he is defined by a minor three in a major key, mm-hmm. whereas Hamilton is defined by a major three in a minor key every time you hear him sing. Explain that more. <laughs> 
Okay, so... Imagine um, not everyone listening is a muso. Okay. <laughs> so basically, when you have a key, you know, you hear key of C, key of D, etc. What you're talking about is a scale. Mm-hmm. Eight notes that you can pick from, and all of those notes make sense. Each one of those notes makes a chord of at least three notes. And they're numbered. So the first note, let's say the key of C, is C. That's the one. Then D is the two. E is the three, etc., all the way to G, and then it starts over again at A. Okay. So, um, every major key has a minor key associated with it. Um, and usually the way that you can tell is you go to, if you're in the minor key, you go to the third uh, note, and that's the major key. It's as simple as that. So, uh, so again, if you are, if you're in a major key, you go to the fifth note, and that's the minor key. You can go back and forth very, very easily. They're called harmonic minors and harmonic majors. Basically, it's the same note, or the same set of notes with one or two changed. So basically, what's going on with uh, Hamilton and um, Burr musically is that you say you have your scale. Burr is the reflection of Hamilton mm-hmm. musically. You can hear you can hear him. He is basically the the dour, boring, minor part. And I'm simplifying this a lot, but he is the dour version of Hamilton. And Hamilton is the major, bright, uplifting part of Burr. Nice. Mm. There's also the fact that um, Burr is his his music. And I love it. His songs, I think, are absolutely fantastic. But they are much more melodic. Um, they're much more commonly sung, um, whereas Hamilton has a lot more spoken word stuff. Um, Burr is, I, I think his music is deliberately more conformist to what's, a, I suppose, a more traditional musical style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean musical mm-hmm. as in terms of the theatrical performance of a musical. Um, it's more what you would expect to hear in this context um, in comparison to the fact that everybody else is doing rap and uh, hip hop and much more uh, beat work. And again, I think that emphasizes the idea that he is the kind of person who sticks to the rules. He does what people expect of him. And then it almost seems like, again, it's it's this acknowledgement to the audience of, well, what did you expect when people weren't going to remember you as distinguishing? You didn't do anything to distinguish yourself. They even call that out multiple times throughout the show. They have... When, you know, Lawrence and Lafayette and and, uh, Mulligan and Hamilton are all together and they talk about Burr, they ask him, say, hey, spit a verse, do a rhyme, say something. (laughs) And he, you know, shakes his hand and says, no, whatever. And they're like, oh, you're crap, Burr. (laughs) (laughs) You are the worst. There's one thing that uh, Hamilton did, which I was completely unaware of because I only heard this few weeks ago um, in this first song that I did in Arlington as well. The last moment of the first song, the last moment of the first chapter in Arlington, match, rhyme. We did the same thing. Um, I'm not comparing my work to his in terms of like how brilliant this structure is in, in any way, but we made the same decision. Um, anyone familiar with Arlington? Fingers crossed. We've, 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 we've heard it a couple a of times, bit. I think. Okay. Yeah, I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on it. Right. 
<laughs> One of the last things said in Alexander Hamilton, the first track, is, and I'm the damn fool that shot him. The last line in the first chapter of Arlington is, pay attention, because the, this story follows the days that led up to the point that Arlington died. And me, I'm the damn fool that shot him. This story takes place in the spring of 1883. The year Vice President Rutherford B. Hayes was eaten by a manticore. Pay close attention, my dears, as it details the tumultuous events of those days which ran up to the point that Arlington died. Both stories pledge this is a man's life and it will end at the end. Pay a bloody attention. It's a different way of handling it than the uh, idea of, oh, what's going to happen? It tells you what's going to happen so that you pay attention. It allows you to almost get that second viewing in the first time. Mm. Well, it's, it's something that signals that the, the most important thing in this story is not what happens, mm. it's how it happens yeah. and who it happens to. Bingo. Those are the things that you need to be, um, to be listening out for and, and absorbing. Also present during uh, Aaron, my shot, are uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, John Lawrence, Hercules, Mulligan. Uh, uh, these uh, these guys all sort of turn up at the uh, um, in the New York set. I, again, this is all just in my head. It's it, it's in a bar. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine it's in a bar. Right. Mm. Um, so so these guys are basically uh, people who uh, Hamilton falls in with, and they're all the revolutionary set, and there's something kind of bohemian about them. Mm. They're all about freedom, beauty, truth, and love. Um, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. In a manner of speaking. They're also <laughs> yeah. super self-aggrandizing. Love your daughters and your horses. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're also, uh, and they're about, well, we're they're reliable. With the ladies, there are so many to the flower. Washington named her feral tomcat after him. That's true. It's not. 1780, a winter's Um <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's it's a great way of, of like establishing straight away who these guys are, why Alexander's gonna fall in with them, why Aaron is constantly separate from them. Even though they all end up moving in the same sort of circles. And uh, these guys all have their moments in the first act, because the first act is all during the Revolutionary War, and the second act is all the clean-up afterwards, and, okay, we know, we've got a country now, what the hell are we going to do with it? Specifically, the guy playing Lafayette switches roles to the guy playing um, Jeff- Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. Yeah. 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 So, and John Lawrence uh, ends up as... Uh, Philip Hamilton. Uh, Philip, yeah. yeah. Uh, I believe, is, does Hercules Mulligan also play... Mulligan is Monroe. Monroe, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's an interesting jumping back to the opening song again. There's this interesting parallel between um, the fact that the actors are more saying we fought with him, I died for him, I trusted him, I loved him. him. It's it's it doubles for both of the characters uh, in Act One and Act Two. 
Trouble and you double your choices. I'm with you, but the situation is fraught. You've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you're gonna get shot. Bird, check what we got. Mr. Lafayette, hard rock like Lancelot. I think your pants look hot. Lawrence, I like you a lot. Let's hatch a plot blacker than the kettle calling the pot. What are the odds of God to put us all in one spot? Pop to the squad and conventional wisdom like it or not. A bunch of revolutionary manumission abolitionists. Give me a position, show me where the ammunition is. Oh, am I talking too loud? Sometimes I get overexcited, shoot off at the mouth. I never had a group of friends before. I promise that I'll make y'all proud. Let's get this guy in front of a crowd. I am not going to make my shot. I am not going to make my shot. Hey, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not going to make my shot. I 
I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory When's it gonna get me? In my sleep, seven feet ahead of me If I see it coming, do I run or do I let it be? Is it like a beat without a melody? See, I never thought I'd live past 20 Where I come from, some get half as many Ask anybody why we live it fast And we laugh, reach for a flask We have to make this moment last That's plenty, scratch that This is not a moment, it's the movement Where all the hungriest brothers with something to prove went Foes oppose us, we take an honest stand We roll like Moses, claiming our promised land And if we win our independence Let a guarantee of freedom for our descendants Or will the blood we shed begin an endless cycle of vengeance And death with no defendants I know the action in the street is exciting But Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting I've been reading and writing We need to handle our financial situation Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting I'm passionately smashing every expectation Every action to act the creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow And I am not for This is something we didn't really get to experience just listening to it, but as far as I can tell with the set and the costumes, there is a lot of blank canvas in the surrounding and supporting players. When someone's on and singing, they're wearing a big bright coat, like a blue or a red or a green, or a beautiful colourful dress. The people around them are wearing just sort of a creamy canvas, an off-white absence of colour, so that you know exactly who you're looking at. Which also allows people to slip on new jackets and suddenly, be, you know, take part in the proceedings. It, that, I, I, I haven't been able to observe it, but that is freaking genius mm-hmm. in terms of... I mean, it's got oh, yeah. to have been an ancient theatrical tradition anyway, but maintaining that now is a really great way of... Um, it's something that differentiates it from uh, film. It is, mm-hmm. And if film ever does it, it's doing it because of the theatrical roots of who, whoever's yeah. putting it together. Yeah, I've, I've seen similar things done theatrically on several occasions, although generally speaking, it tends to be more people wear black hmm. um, so that they can put um, like one layer costumes on over yeah. the top yeah. um, to, to change character. It does make costume changes a lot more straightforward. Yeah. And yes, it is a technique that gets ditched when you're doing a theatrical performance that's um, that's goes more with the realism where everybody's sort of wearing proper full costume yeah um which is a shame because it is a very neat technique yeah one thing that i really like about my shot is that it's such a great i want song oh yeah and there are a lot of i yeah. want songs oh, yeah. in here but i i get the entire sense of kind of everybody out of that and particularly hamilton um and again my sh- my shot just the themes musically just keep coming back over and over again it's got its own chord progression as well and I'll talk about that once we get to a later song because they ties a bunch of them together. Mm. It's really cool. There's there's something quite important about allowing the major characters all to get their own I Want song, actually, because it, it gives you a sense that they're all real, that they're all players in this game. It's not just Hamilton's story, even though it's his name on the playbill. Um, there are other people who are ju- have just as much skin in this as he does. 
the um, I watched we watched a PBS documentary uh, about um, the making of Hamilton, and it started before he had actually made it. Eighteen months to day one. And uh, he was, you know, racked with nerves. Uh, you know, the, the pressure was mounting. He's got to write like it's going out of style. Why do you write like it's going out of style? Why do you write like it's going out of style? Every day you fight like it's going out of style. Do what you do. He was talking about the uh, My Shot song, and he just said it was an I Want song, but he just carried on while he was talking as though that was something that was, like, you know, a generally used phrase in uh, just modern society it feels like the ghost of howard ashman in the background it feels like lin manuel miranda was just as inspired well just as inspired considerably more inspired than we (laughs) we talk about these films he goes out and makes the musicals um and so the fact that he's now working with disney is just, just seems so right for him to have found this place and I mean, we we will talk about Moana when the time comes, but it, it it's one of the best Disney musical scores ever put together. So good, hmm. it's great. There's a lot of repetition <laughs> used to emphasise what you need to be paying attention to, and this was something that I I suddenly twigged that they'd used the power of three for the jewels because mm-hmm. you've got mm-hmm. the, the ten, ten jewel commandments. commandments basically lays out this is how a jewel is supposed to go this mm-hmm. is how it plays out when everything goes right um, then you've got uh, what happens away. with the second jewel um, which obviously has is, blow us all away yeah blow us all away yeah. is the 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 flip side of that basically this is what happens when it's one that, that you really don't want to end badly um and then obviously you have the the third play of it which i won't talk about yet yeah they already spoiled it at the end of the first song <laughs> yeah i know but i mean the context okay yeah. can we can we really offer a spoiler yeah. warning for you know, the history of <laughs> yeah. alexander, alexander hamilton? hamilton is dead oh <laughs> okay um yeah. uh, michael bay michael bay directed the commercial Ow. that let everybody know that <laughs> oh. <laughs> seriousness for a second uh when i think of um Hamilton musically um I kind of think of that scene in Labyrinth where you see the rock face and then when the characters walk through it you see it's made of several different parts mm. that are staggered and it's just forced perspective that makes it look like a face from where the camera's sitting yeah and that's essentially I think what's going on musically you, it establishes all these themes and then it just piles them on top of each other in different configurations to give you mm. different images Hamilton, Lafayette, Lawrence, Mulligan all wanted to fight in the Revolutionary War, which had started uh, the year before in name, but wasn't really becoming a conflagration until around 1776. They went, they fought. Uh, Hamilton ended up becoming uh, George Washington's right-hand man, a uh, place that was uh, of envy to Aaron Burr, despite the fact that Hamilton said, all I'm basically doing is writing his journal. Here comes the general. Lots of fighting went on. You may have heard of it. 
Uh, and, and this was all down to the fact that uh, the King of England, King George III, had been told by America, we want to be an independent nation rather than paying tax to you guys. It's they didn't want to be a colony anymore. Yeah, we, don't, we no longer want to be a colony. Uh, and uh, King George III uh, is, uh, turns up uh, at this point to basically kind of write a letter to America as though from a, I've done no wrong, abusive spouse to his other half. Uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, but it's done in such a kind of a, a fun way that uh, all of the terrifying insidiousness, especially if you actually watch him sing it, he's just standing rigid and stock still in this sort of uh, catskin wind cheater, sort of glaring at the audience while smiling. It's incredibly funny. And it's incredibly catchy as an earworm that the intonation of it is like Old Testament God, you will have no other gods than me, super jealous. Super. This is King George III who, you know, was at the time going mad from syphilis, representative of the idea of inherited monarchy and keeping the wealthy at the top and giving no poor person the ability to actually rise up. When are these colonies gonna rise up? And that was ultimately what the American dream, as I understand it, is to fight against that, to make it so that somebody can come to America and make it to the top, which has somewhat gotten muddied over the years as people started saying, no, we haven't got enough room anymore, too many immigrants, get them all out. Well, the, the part of the issue is that the, the one of the things that was being kicked against was the British obsession with the class system and class mm. structure. Mm. And they immediately replaced it with a class structure based on how much money you had and how old your money was and how well-to-do your family was. So, you know, round of applause on that one. But Over um, time, America I, became, <laughs> in some regards, a uh, mirror image of yeah. the worst that Britain's empire Indeed. became. But the, I think the one of the things that I found so humorous about um, George III and his the, the performance and his songs is that there's there's a modern take on the monarchy's perception of itself and the fact that um, that even I mean even in Britain these days obviously the monarchy has very little actual power. There's not much that they can do. It's it's there for you know stamps. And it's kind things. of a mascot. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, Christmas address. Yeah, that that kind of thing. It it looks good, <laughs> and um, you know it's it's a, a nod to a history that goes back thousands of years. Thousands? Thousands and a bit. So, yeah, yeah. Lots. So, um, go, taking it back to, say, William the Conqueror. Yeah. But, like, it's... The monarchy has been challenged a few times in mm. this country. It's just... We tend to sort of go, ah, no, we quite like having somebody with a crown on at the front. Mm. <laughs> we tend to decide mm. what we like uh, by uh, shouting extremely loudly. Yeah, we had a go at civil war and overthrew the, yeah. the king and went, actually, can we have him back now? <laughs> Which is a bit Oh, odd. Charles I is out. Uh, can, can we get another one? Yeah. <laughs> it's a great way of sort of summing up the, uh, the, the evil empire that America are fighting against. The young, scrappy and hungry. And hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy and hungry. They want to... Be free. Mm. It, one thing it really did make me keep thinking of, though, is that adage about um, revolution is a young man's game mm. and the fact that they you see the characters age, you see them grow up, you see them recognise that at some point the fighting has to stop and you have to write the laws and build the Congress building and, and actually start 
ruling. But again, I like the fact that George challenges that and basically says to them, you know, ha, good luck. It's all going to fall apart because you don't know what you're doing. Um, but they they have a go and don't do a bad job. For all you Brits out there, the king who's about to sing, his son was this guy. Honestly, Blackett, I don't know why I'm bothering to get dressed. As soon as I get to the naughty Hellfire Club, I'll be debagged and radished for non-payment of debts. Radished, sir. Yes, they pull your britches down and push a large radish. Yes, right yes, yes, your... yes. <laughs> you say the price of my love is not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry in your tea, which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember despite our estrangement, I'm your man. You'll be back. Soon you'll see you remember you belong to me You'll be back, time will tell you remember that I served you well Oceans rise, empires fall We have seen each other through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da 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 Subject, my sweet submissive subject, my loyal royal subject, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war. For your love, for your praise And I'll love you till my dying days When you're gone, I'll go mad So don't throw away the sting we had Cause when push comes to shove I will kill your friends and family To remind you of my love Da-da-da-da-da Da 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 Everybody da 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 
if you would allow me, part of the contradiction of the American spirit is that they are caught in between the point where they were, we will no longer be slaves to you guys. We will no longer swear fealty to you guys. We want to be free to, we don't want the government telling us what to do. We want to be free. At some point, you got to depend on someone. We okay. can't all live in a log cabin and shoot trespassers. Say, otherwise, you're just a dude in a shed in a wood. <laughs> yeah, and we've had our fair share of those. Mm. Uh, I am fascinated uh, yeah. and uh, continuously compelled by the American spirit and the, the, uh, what America wants to be. It's why I've based a series of novels that I appear will probably be writing for the rest of my life on your country and, and just on this sensibility because it is so interesting and it's so flawed and it's so mm-hmm. it's got so much good intentions in there and so much bad has come of it but at the same time <laughs> th- there's always the possibility of good the structure of the show itself mirrors that the first act is entirely about rebelling against the man and like we don't want control and then the second half is oh wait we have to become what we fought against in order to survive mm. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. George for George for all of being George the Third is ultimately right. We don't know what we're doing, or at least the characters don't know what they're doing, and there's a lot of flailing around and trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Some would argue we still don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Some depends Most. on the year. Everybody here, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think though the the now. one thing yeah. that I'm particularly fascinated by in terms of theme and and possibly because I've got it so stuck in my head at the moment it keeps cropping up in all sorts of things that I'm reading and watching um, but it came across in this as well is this idea that that um, humankind is basically the bridge between the earth and the stars that we have to be practical in order to be able to survive we have flesh bodies and we have to feed them and, and you know water them etc in order to live but also we have the the spirit and the uh, the intellect to reach out to the stars and the balance between those two things is ultimately what makes us human and if we lean too far one way or the other things can become distorted and um, you know you can get bogged down in the physical and the practicality and the pragmatism of how the sausage is made um, or you can become too idealized and too um, you know fixated on these dreams that ultimately can't be realized unless you're willing to compromise Um, and again I think the seeing all of the people in this learn that in their own way and at their own pace and the way that all plats together is what makes the framework of it so fascinating for me drops mic right yeah so moving on to the Skylar sisters what were their names again Angelica I mean, Lyra what? got very um, uh, agitated when the, they repeated it later on. They said Angelica and Eliza, and she was like, "Where's Peggy?" Where's Peggy? She's not visiting. Justin says the same thing. Yeah. Um, okay, so what a way to introduce uh, three characters all at once. Uh, effectively, this is just three sisters walking around New York uh, looking for a mind at work. If, effectively, they're checking out the guys, but they're trying to see if any of them are thinkers and any of them can actually engage. And uh, there's, there's definitely a feeling like um, Peggy, the youngest, is being dragged around by the, uh, the elder mm-hmm. sisters. Um, and it's, doesn't want to get in trouble. Doesn't want to get in trouble, but definitely uh, is enamored of her sisters. I mean, I've got so many favorite songs in yeah. this, but this is one this is near great. the top. I adore this yeah. one. Mm-hmm. 
I was going to say, one thing that I think is really cool about it is Peggy always sings in a minor key and Angelica and Eliza always respond in a major. So it's, Daddy said to be home by sundown. Daddy doesn't need to know. Yeah, it, it immediately goes, Daddy said not to go downtown. Like I said, you're free to go. Peggy is the wet blanket and the other two are just dragging it back up. Mm. Like, this is amazing. She's the Aaron Burr parallel. <laughs> Yeah. So, no. <laughs> yes. Actually, yeah. 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 I, I didn't know that, but yes. Well, they're definitely drawing a parallel between Angelica and uh, Hamilton in that they both mm-hmm. have that fire and that inquisitiveness, and they want to. Um, they've got something to prove. There's nothing rich folks love more than going downtown and slumming it with the poor. They pull up in their carriages and gawk at the students in the common just to watch them talk. Take Philip Schuyler, the man is loaded. Uh-oh, but little does he know that his daughter's Peggy, Angelica, Eliza, sneak to the city just to watch all the guys. It- work, work. Angelica, work, work. Eliza, and work, Peggy, work. the Schuyler's sister. Angelica, Peggy, Eliza, work. Daddy said to be home by sundown. Daddy doesn't need to know. Me. I'm a trust fund, baby, you can trust me. I've been reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine. So men say that I'm intense or I'm insane. You want a revolution, I want a revelation. So listen to my declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And when I meet Thomas Jefferson, oh. I'ma compel him to include women in the sequel. Work! Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be right there and there have always been very thoughtful women and this is just sort of like lifting the veil back on that ah, nice yeah uh, lifting the Only veil the back women on that. say work after that by the way yes work! 
but there's also the, the the core of what a woman had to do to support her husband at the time, which threads through it. So it's kind of got the you know the both hands of, of what women want to do at the time and what women are impelled to do at the time. I think a lot of that has to do with the um, the idea of, of dependency for survival, hmm. um, because there's there's sort of this theme in a, a lot of stories set around that time and a little bit later of the you know the whole behind every uh, great woman great, great man, man is, is a great a woman good woman good a woman. great woman and that you know that ultimately if there wasn't somebody there to wash george washington's socks and cook his breakfast then the revolution would never have happened because hmm. he'd have been starving and had holes in his socks um but <laughs> um but i i think this the the Skylar sisters are set up as, as very strong characters because you need foils to all of this masculine energy that's knocking around. Yeah. It's this is this is a story of an entire nation, and a nation is generally speaking about fifty percent female, and you need that balance to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't. I've said this before: stories that don't have women in don't feel real. Mm. Because there's very few circumstances in the real world where you would have absolutely no women and they are all artificially structured. Um, But one of the things I find most uh, fascinating about the Skylar sisters is that they have this, this duality often presented as two sisters is something I always love in stories that you have... Duty versus inspiration. um, Not just that, but there there are a lot of, of elements to them that basically if... If you had all of these things combined in one woman, that's that's kind of the perfect woman, if you like. But it's, get your woman who can do both. Get your woman who can do both, effectively. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's 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 um, Elizabeth Bennet and Jane, mm-hmm. uh, her sister in Pride and Prejudice. It's uh, Joe and Meg in Little Women. Mm-hmm. It's that balance between the uh, the smart girl who knows how the world works and basically knows how she's going to have to play it and then the sister stroke part of her who is more naive and more idealistic and and you Truth know stroke Harry. wants the romantic uh, elements yeah Truth exactly and, and, and often the exactly that's that more hard-nosed person has to put their own dreams aside a little bit in order to protect the idealistic sister Mm-hmm. Um, and it's well, a it's a really, I I think a really lovely story to to put forward and explore. But the flip side of that is I really love the way Eliza comes into her own towards the end, yeah. and actually uh-huh. gets her own um, version of how the world works and how she wants to play it, and takes more control on it, and isn't just a pawn of. Mm. Alexander and um, Angelica. Because when you first hear it and you hear um, Satisfied, you're thinking, right, I'm totally down with Angelica. I really like Eliza and I suppose Peggy as well. But like, clearly this is a story about Angelica. She then takes no further part in proceedings, aside from a couple of cameos later. She has yeah. this incredible, incredible song. You've got this... Uh, a double bill of um, Helpless from Eliza, which is a sort of... It's a little bit soppy. It's a little bit kind of... It's a bit t- like, you know, like, you're not immediately going to, you know, side with this girl, especially after the heartache and the, the just the wit of Satisfied. She is 
mm-hmm. an atom yeah. bomb at that point, and you are so down with her, but she seeds the floor, and it is so beautiful the way that's done. For context, this song takes place after the Winter's Ball when Angelica and Eliza both met Alexander at the same time. And this song begins at the wedding of Alexander and Eliza that December. And it is sung by Angelica. All right, all right. That's what I'm talking about. Now, everyone, give it up for the maid of honor. Angelica Skylar! A toast to the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the bride. To the bride. To the bride. From your sister.
takes fighting a war for us to meet, it will have been worth it. I'll leave you to it. Number three. I know my sister like I know my own mind. You will never find anyone as trusting or as kind. If I tell her that I love him, she'd be silently resigned. He'd be mine. She would say I'm fine. She'd be lying. But when I fantasize at night, it's Alexander's eyes. As I romanticize what might have been if I hadn't sized him up so quickly. At least, my dear Eliza's his wife. At least I keep his eyes in my life. It is a dramatised and a slight bastardization of exactly what the, the real-life scenario was. She had already eloped with another guy by that point when she met uh, Alexander. So she And also yeah. they had, uh, like, eight siblings, including two adult males, so there was no desperate need for someone, one of them, to marry for money. Ultimately, this was a decision made to sell the drama of the situation and to pre- present a human drama that you would really start to root for these characters and the love that was between these uh, these sisters mm. and the solidarity it's all it always immediately gets to me whenever i see somebody sacrificing something of their own happiness for someone else without belaboring the point mm. although i think the way it's outlined although it's the the fact that satisfied is such a stronger song um than helpless musically it it sets out that eliza's story is not going to be an entirely happy one Hmm. and you know Uh that going in but at the same time it doesn't exactly give you the idea that if angelica and uh, alexander ran off together they'd be desperately happy either because ultimately you get person a who's never satisfied and person b who's never satisfied you put them together brilliant they get to be never satisfied together for the rest of their lives they will never be satisfied one thing that uh, i really love about satisfied is again it sets up a musical theme that keeps coming up over and over again which is uh pentatonic scale runs a pentatonic scale is just a it's a five note scale and there are rules to it but if you listen, basically, if you want to hear what it sounds like, just listen to the background with that piano, the dun, 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 up and down. Mm-hmm. It's just going up and down these scales. It's really, really simple. Yeah, and I love the the repetition as well of Angelica's line about, yeah. um, uh, I know my sister like I know my own mind, you will never find someone as trusting or as kind. Coming. When she repeats yeah. that later on in Act 2, it becomes accusatory. Yeah. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but so the, also the other thing that about the uh, pentatonic scales I want to bring up is that every time you hear it, it's about familial obligation and sacrificing for your family. Mm-hmm. Every time. And this is another one of those where they lyrically bring it back in to to your point where, you know, when she comes back and says, I know my own sister, like I know my own mind, it's accusatory. She does the same thing with satisfied because they pepper that in frequently. Whenever Hamilton has to make a decision, you hear Angelica come in and say, you know, you will never be satisfied. Yeah. When when she comes back and says, you will never be satisfied. God, I hope you're satisfied. Like, what did you do? You Mm -hmm. brought this on yourself. Sharon actually brought this up, and I just want to kind of jump on top of this. Uh, she, Sharon compared um, Eliza and Angelica to uh, Jane and Lizzie Bennet. I think like they're definitely Austin as Carowinds. I think a better comparison might be um, Marianne and Eleanor from Sense and Sensibility, where mm-hmm. one of them is very much the more sensible, practical one, and the other one is more swept up in the emotion of everything, at least at the start. Um, it becomes more – they shift more towards – Jane and Lizzie and the end where they both start to de- where Eliza starts more develop it into her character but at the start Eliza's very clearly wrapped up in the emotion and the feelings that she has looking at um Alexander and Angelica's just like you know what nope this is this is better for everybody if I step off and leave this to her and I it, that seems like like a more apt comparison to me mm. no I think you're probably right I mean the the difference I think is that um, because Jane is the older Bennett um, Lizzie is not actively trying uh-huh. to organize Jane's life for her whereas Angelica is trying to uh, put things in place for Eliza right. and um, but I, I also like the little bit of of uncertainty uh, that that gets put into Angelica's characterization in that song because it's not one of the the three fundamental truths that she mentions is that she's not entirely certain of um, Alexander's motivations that ultimately um, she questions okay he's gone for a Skylar would he go for any Skylar is he going to choose her over anything else or would he be just as happy if she presented him with her sister which she does and he is so that kind of answers her question but i think the um the comparison with the uh with joe and meg from little women definitely stands although yeah ultimately joe sacrifices uh laurie for amy um rather than meg but her um her intention is still the same it doesn't matter who she's in love with it's one of her sisters deserves it more one thing I kind of like about uh, Satisfied as well is um, when Angelica is sort of mulling things over in her head, even as she's introducing Alexander to Eliza. Um, at one point, she ends it with, uh, now that now that's his bride, nice going, Angelica, he was right, you will never be satisfied. Mm. It's almost like she's acknowledging that she trips herself up, that maybe she could be satisfied, but in sort of a... Faustian way almost and I can't believe I just said that uh, she gets in her own way to make sure that she can't that she will always have that she will always need something but again I think there's an element of self-protectiveness in that as well because she probably knows herself well enough to know she'd still be looking for something yeah. else even if she had him um, it's you know maybe uh, I'm just trying to think of a parallel. The, the fact that he is clearly destined for great things politically 
maybe she recognises at that point she doesn't have it in her to be the quiet wife who serves dinner and doesn't argue with his colleagues. Maybe, yeah. That's a good point. She recognises that he's an Icarus. Just because you mentioned Icarus there, the uh, idea of uh, reaching for the sky and the parallel that is with both throwing away your shot and firing upwards. Philip and uh, Alexander are always trying to climb upwards and there is i think there is an important um metaphor in the firing upwards though because ultimately shooting into the air is a signal Mm -hmm. it's a it's an alert it tells people you're there Mm -hmm. and that's what they're trying to do make their mark tell people they exist and again alexander hamilton is represented by a major three in a minor key he is musically always going up he is an underdog who is lifting himself wanting to be noticed of wanting to always be there basically he likes to he likes his voice to come out of that drudgery whereas those like uh aaron burr who keep their feet on the ground keep facing forwards uh they get to live So they do not get to hit those heights. Well, this is why he doesn't want to be a secretary. He wants to be a warrior. He wants to distinguish himself on the battlefield. There's a very Mm -hmm. close call where it's going to be either... Was it Jefferson for Treasury and uh, Hamilton for... It's it's Jefferson for State and Hamilton for Treasury. That's it. But it 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 could have have been the other way way around. And what shape would America have been had that been the case? Yeah. Because what they're arguing about during those rap battles is effectively southern farmers feeling like Washington is not listening to them. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with us in New York City. Are you ready for a cabinet meeting? Huh? The issue on the table. Secretary Hamilton's plan to assume state debt and establish a national bank. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals, we shouldn't settle for less. These are wise words, enterprising men quote them. Don't act surprised, you guys, cause I wrote them. Ow, but Hamilton forgets. His plan would have the government assume state debts. Now place your bets as to who that benefits. The very seat of government where Hamilton sits. Not true. Oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If New York's in debt, why should Virginia bear it? Uh, our debts are paid, I'm afraid. Don't tax the South, cause we got it made in the shade. In Virginia, we plant seeds in the ground. We create, you just wanna move our money around. This financial plan is an outrageous demand, and it's too many damn pages for any man to understand. Stand with me in the land of the free. Pray to God we never see Hamilton's candidacy. Look, when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what gon' happen when you try to tax our whiskey. Thank you, Secretary Jefferson. Secretary Hamilton, your response. Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present, we're running a real nation. Would you like to join us? Or staying mellow, doing whatever the hell it is you doing, Monticello. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative? A civics lesson from a slaver, hey neighbor, your debts are paid cause you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the south, we create, they keep ranting, we know who's really doing the planting. And another thing, Mr. Age of Enlightenment, don't lecture me about the war, you didn't fight in it. 
You think I'm frightened of you, man? We almost died in the trench. Well, you were off getting high with the French. Thomas Jefferson always hesitant with the president. Medicine, there isn't a plan he doesn't jettison. Madison, you mad as a hatter, so take your medicine. Damn you in worse shape than the national denizen. Sitting there useless as two shits. Hey, turn around, bend over. I'll show you where my shoe fits. Excuse me. Madison, Jefferson, take a walk. Hamilton, take a walk. We're gonna reconvene after a brief recess. Hamilton, sir, a word. You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. <laughs> You're gonna need congressional approval and you don't have the votes. Such a blunder, sometimes it makes me wonder why I even bring the thunder. Why he even brings the thunder? Wanna pull yourself together? I'm sorry, these Virginians are birds of a feather. Young man, I'm from Virginia, so watch your mouth. So we let Congress get held hostage by the South? You need the votes. No, we need bold strokes. We need this no, plan. No, you need to convince more folks. Well, James Madison won't talk to me. That's a non-starter. Ah, winning was easy, young man. Governing's hard. They're being intransigent. You have to find a compromise. But they don't have a plan. They just hate mine. Convince them otherwise. And what happens if I don't get congressional approval? I imagine they'll call for your removal. Sir. Figure it out, Alexander. That's an order from your commander. You know what that basically is? All I'm saying is that when you split the bill three ways... The, the steak, steak eater picks the, the pocket, pocket of the, the salad, salad man. Salad man. <laughs> there is, however, one man who balances that shooting for the sky with keeping his feet on the ground. One of your favourite characters, Sharon? Mm-hmm, George Washington. Here comes the General Washington! Some of your favourite songs are George Washington's. Mm. Why, why did this character appeal to you so much? I think it's the... Part of it is the steadying influence. He's the... Where George is the abusive parental figure, mm. Washington, George, as in the King, George, King um, George, is the abusive parental figure. George Washington is the benevolent parental figure who, when he talks about legacy, he's recognising the fact that um, it's you, you plant seeds for a garden that you will never see. It's the idea that um, if you truly love your children, you will plant trees for them that you will never sit under. Yeah. That you're building something that the fruits of which are going to outlive you by a long chalk, hopefully. And that's one of the um, last major impacts impactful statements that Alexander makes. Absolutely. And and the the most important thing ultimately that Washington does in this is step down and do that by choice rather than being he's not deposed, he's not thrown out. He doesn't outstay his welcome, he doesn't keep just stay there gripping on to the last. Exactly. It is a it is an act of humility. And humility is one thing that a large amount of America needs to learn. Yes. Uh-huh. There is yep. so much pride. So much pride. National pride. I completely understand being proud of your nation, but there is so much aggressive pride. And I recognize this rotten weakness in my own country. Britain is just as bad, possibly worse, for being self-entitled self-aggrandizing and trampling all other countries in the dash to the buffet of life but we're so self-effacing and we spend so much time moaning about our country that it's almost not noticed that we're egotistical to the point of madness and it would seem that we are not above telling the rest of the world that god told us we were special yorkshire 
best place on earth. It isn't. God's own county. God's own country. Should be a country. It's obvious Yorkshire's better. That was an advert for Yorkshire Water, in which Yorkshire tore itself off the map and ran away to live somewhere in the North Sea. Good luck with that. I'm not kidding, by the way. That actually happened. That's an actual advert. American exceptionalism is toxic. Yeah. Mm. It really is. And humility would really, really help. And that's part of what Washington sets up this very important precedent that you cannot be at the top of this pile for more than X number of years. So in a way, it combines that um, that young, scrappy and hungry energy of you've got eight years maximum to do whatever it is you want to do. But at the same time, there's an important an important part of that is that this will come to an end. You are going to have to hand this over to somebody. You have to leave it in a format that somebody else can pick up after you. And I think the the way it's it's portrayed in this, it's that he recognises that what King George says is absolutely right. If the person who comes next does, doesn't know what they're doing... And everybody has come to rely on a strong leader who's been there for years and years and years. It all falls over and they have to start all over again. So... (laughs) (laughs) I am King George laughing at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Oh, my God. Barely to alive. (laughs) You made me cry, Sharon. Damn it. I'm so sorry. Um, If it helps at all, we're going to be no use at this point. So don't worry at all. Um, (laughs) Maybe Scotland can come to our aid. Uh, yes <laughs> Nicholas Sturgeon is waiting to take your call um, but but the, the what he manages to uh, to put across is what a lot of the other characters don't see because they're all seeing the tiny slice of their you know they, they're seeing their piece of the pie and you know Hamilton's emphasis is all on this financial structure that he set his heart on um, you know Jefferson is looking at it from how are the states all going to work together how are we going to um, allow Virginia to get its own way which let's face it was basically what that was kind of about um, mm-hmm. but yeah. but Washington ultimately is the man who has to see everything he has to see it from this kind of almost God perspective while at the same time again but a benevolent rather than a jealous but this God. Is, yeah, exactly. This is the thing. He he recognises that he is the bridge between the earth and the stars and that ultimately if he gets pulled too high, he's going to end up being King George who thinks he can have it all his own way and, and not expect any kind of reaction. Um, but if he gets too down in the trenches, he can't see what's going on. And he even talks about that with his first command. He, you know, he's too close to it and he messes up and he has to live with that for the rest of his life. Washington also seemed to be the only character who was given our historical hindsight. Like he seems to always know what is best rather than just what looks best at that moment. He seems to be able to, he almost seems, it it seems like he has the foresight that we wish everyone would have. Like Mm -hmm. if we could go back and say, just do this one thing differently. Washington is the one who has that. He gets to be, the wise character, it's sort of like Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel Miranda is speaking 
to these characters through Washington. Yeah, which again and gives you that idea that this is a, a, a cast who are speaking directly to the audience, that this is a story that is aware that it's a story, which to my mind are the best kind. Oh, yeah. It seems like mm-hmm. they need, there is a it's, triangle, you know, like the fire triangle of the oxygen, c- heat, heat, and combustible fuel. material. There are three things to be a really great president. Or leader of any kind. Well, the, in this case specifically, okay. uh, I'm, I'm thinking president. I'm just looking back on the ones that were considered really, really great and considering what we've just lost and what we've currently got and what we really, really don't have of these three. Wisdom. Humility. Inspiration. Specifically to mm-hmm. be inspirational to other people. Now you, I mean, yeah. feasibly, you know, you could you could point to Trump and say uh, the first time we've actually named him, by the way, uh, you could point to Trump and say, well, he is inspirational. Yeah, to the wrong the white people. supremacists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But hang on a second. There's no right and wrong. This is a political situation. Everybody is a little bit right and a little bit wrong. No, wrong, because the people that Trump is inspirational to do not value wisdom or humility. I was younger than you are now When I was given my first command I led my men straight into a massacre I witnessed their deaths firsthand I made every mistake And felt the shame rise in me And even now I lie awake Knowing history has its eyes Tell you what I wish I'd known When I was young and dreamed of glory You have no control Who lives, who dies, who tells your story I know that we can win I know that greatness lies in you But remember from here on in History has its eyes So going back a little bit, uh, the thing with Washington is that, you know, it's an American tradition for us to deify and mythologize Washington. And it's in any other time period, you know, five years ago, Hamilton would not be subversive. It would be fairly run of the mill because it is not a subversive play. Ultimately, it's not trying to make any points that we don't already know. If anything, it is very much pro, again, this idea of America. America is awesome. Yay. Pretty much, yeah. America's awesome. It doesn't get any better than this. Even when we stumble, we stumble in the most entertaining and noble ways. Um, So it is not a subversive. It is subversive because of the time period in which it has been presented to us. Um, And, you know, even Washington, who is becomes almost a subversive character in the sense that when he is speaking to the characters and, as you said, to the audience, he is telling us what we should be aspiring to and making us aware of our failings as a nation when again five years ago that would not be the case 
Mm. We haven't actually even talked about the casting, just in terms of diversity. Pretty much every lead character is a person of colour in some form or mm-hmm. other, and obviously, almost all of these people are were just straight up white. And I actually saw a piece of criticism that said, "Well, in making these people people of colour, it took away the, uh, the the focus from the people of colour who were actually in the periphery of this and who actually contributed to America." Yes, true, but also for the love of God, this is. Allowing people of color currently in America right now to feel mm-hmm. like it's it goes beyond just skin to be able to look at these historical figures and feel some sense of identity, feel some sense of this applies to me in some way. And that, by the way, is the genius of making this hip hop. That mm-hmm. makes young people want to sing these songs in class like they're the latest songs by Drake or Jay- <laughs> Jay- Jay-Z. Jay-Z. Show your age there. <laughs> who, who else is there? Um, oh, who, who are the new kids Scoopy, Scoopy, to? Dog, Dog. How do you do, fellow kids? What? Uh, oh, <laughs> Kanye's still big, right? No, um, Wiz, Wiz Khalifa <laughs> is, is awesome. <laughs> Wiz I mean, Khalifa. You're not, you're not yeah. wrong at all. So is Jean Khalifa. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been massively into hip-hop. I pick up classic hip-hop albums rather than following a specific artist. So I've got Illmatic by Nas, I got Straight Outta Compton sometime in the early 2000s, got Reasonable Doubt, got The Black Album by Jay-Z, got Fort Minor's first album, I got Black On Both Sides by Moz Def, got Black Sunday by Cypress Hill, big fan of the Beastie Boys, got most of their albums. Got Mac Daddy by Sir Mix-a-Lot, and not just for Baby's Got Back. Got The Chronic by Dr. Dre. First four albums by Eminem. Got All Eyes On Me by Tupac. Got Arela and Carla by M.I.A. So most of my life it's been about rock. But yeah, when I get into hip-hop, it tends to be the greats. So please do recommend really great hip-hop albums. <laughs> You're not wrong. I went into my the first day of my uh, Jane Austen course at... Uh, this semester, mm. and when we're covering all of the background information, our my professor is dropping Hamilton quotes as they're applicable, and it made everyone set up and actually pay attention to the non-text-related stuff for the first time I've seen in mm. four years. Mm. I don't I think- know anywhere near enough about rap that I, uh, that I should, or, or rap history or rap personalities. I I, I know what I like. But I can tell you right now, each and every individual character in this is styled after someone. They yeah, have yeah. a different cadence to the way that they sing each individual person. And I recognize, but not enough for me to make an informed parallel of one-to-one. There are pe- like hip-hop historians out there who could definitely help with this. I mean, the one that comes to mind right off the bat, I was looking at um, annotated lyrics last night of some of the songs to prep and I saw one note on um, Jefferson and it listed to linked to a, uh, the initial casting call for Jefferson and Lafayette. And it said, um, Drake meets Harold Hill. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. All right. Now that we're on uh, history has its eyes on you. I've been holding <laughs> off on this one, but one thing that I noticed uh, when I was uh, prepping today is that my shot, Satisfied, and History Has Its Eyes on You all have the exact same chord progression in a different key. So these are linked for a real... And I'm trying to think, what are what do these things have to do with one another? So Satisfied and My Shot are both I Want songs. History Has Its Eyes on You is the resolution to my shot. Hamilton wanted something, now he's got it, now you have the responsibility because everybody is watching you. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and then satisfied and history um are both about how you need to give up the thing that you want sometimes for something else. Mm. It is telling this consistent story in three songs, essentially. Mm. And I think if you're looking at it as a uh, a hero's journey as well, George Washington is your sage, your, your wise man, and this is the cautionary tale. I, I have to say, I think I uh, History Has Its Eyes on You is probably my favourite song. Mm in it I, it's there's a there's a handful that are kind of circulating around the top but this is definitely one of the um, one of my favorites i absolutely love it um just to jump backwards very slightly to the um the diversity of the cast i think i whether this was intentional or not i don't know I, certainly the way it came across to me was that by having it be uh, your cast be very visually diverse Skin tone, hairstyle, height, body shape, song style, vocal style. It gets across this idea of how culturally, relatively speaking, diverse America was made up of of people who came from Germany and France and Britain and and, um, Holland Holland and uh, the Caribbean and and all all over Europe and all through the islands. And, you know, people from all around the world had pooled in this one place. It's using the reality of it to tell the story of the white men who signed the papers. Yeah, but I think ultimately if if you just have a cast of white men who are all roughly the same age, a, we wouldn't be talking about this right now. Yeah. Because it wouldn't um, have been a huge hit it was. The phenomenon. But it, it wouldn't give you that visual shorthand of what a mixed bag of people were involved in the founding of America. I'm Jai Courtney and I'm just here to I'm say... Here to ruin your drinking <laughs> The founding father's got some shit to pay. Hmm. I don't know about else, but these... These people, these characters, these actors have become sort of the definitive faces of these people for me. Yeah, like yeah. when I to, to me, like, you know how when you think of of Frodo Baggins at this point now, everybody pretty much pictures Eliza Wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eliza I, Wood. Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam. Sure. <laughs> yep. I don't see, like, if when I picture Thomas Jefferson, I'm seeing David Diggs. Mm-hmm. When I picture Alexander Hamilton, it's Lin-Manuel Miranda, and it always will be, no matter what the guy actually looked like. Mm. Which is another way, like, uh, I know that London's already booked out, but I'm, I, I feel like we're going to see it because the wait for it to turn into a film is going to become agonizing. So... Uh, they recorded the last six weeks of uh, yeah. Lin-Manuel Miranda's run, Ooh. and they're editing it together. And oh. they're planning a ro- they're planning a rollout. I think sometime in 2018 mm. across theaters. Mm-hmm. Across theaters. So for that. Yeah. Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> they they're very careful with the f bombs in the uh, uh, production, but uh, yeah. yeah. The the idea that this should not just be for the super rich because paying Broadway prices is crazy and just getting to new york is crazy and so you know even just going into london and get like we tried to we tried to see the invisible child but the website didn't work for the that cursed what, child. the cursed child the invisible child the cursed child <laughs> uh, but the website didn't work on that like, i basically i queued for an hour and a half and at the last second i was entering the digits and i went click and it went Oh, there's been a problem. You've been shoved to the back of the queue. It's like, well, I guess we're not seeing the cursed child then, and we never yeah. will. 
But I, I want to see it in London, but I don't want to see it not Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it's going to be weird when the film eventually does happen and it's someone else. Although maybe yeah. maybe they'll, they'll get, him, get him in for that because it feels like... I, I don't see how they don't. I honestly yeah. don't see how they cast it any other way. Yeah. It's not like Phantom, is it? It's not like you've got to have Michael Crawford for Phantom. Well, apart from anything else, if you cast people who can't rap, everyone's going to go, why did you even bother? I'm Jai Courtney, and I'm here to... <laughs> How did he get a role in Gerard this? Butler. He has the best agent. I have the best agents. Uh, believe me. I can play Hamilton, Mark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is Britain. Splat. Brian, you need to get me a role in Hamilton. Okay, um, so uh, speaking of out of touch, uh, what I miss uh, is Thomas Jefferson comes back after being in France for, for many, many years, uh, helping America in that way. And uh, very specifically, he sings in a kind of a... It's swing. It's jazz, swing, I want to say ragtime, but it's kind of... Yeah. Dun, 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 like that. He is clearly out of touch he even says he missed the late uh, he missed the 80s meaning the 1780s but um yeah. ultimately still works he, he, he's coming in during the um the west coast scene and saying okay guys so we're we're gonna sing uh, a hip-hop song have you ever listened to rap back in the day it's always some dude being like well i went to the hat store today and i bought myself a hat <laughs> I, I really like actually the fact that it's the same um, actor playing Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Because basically, you've got the same man Lafayette. doing both sides of the Franco-American transaction. Mm, mm. There's that relationship already mm. there. It's almost yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah. Look, what it, it gives? What did I miss? This comedic feel to it. So he comes back and just mugs at the camera and goes, "What did I miss?" Yeah. Wank, wank. Boom. But this, I mean, ultimately, uh, the this is the 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 little bit of the American Revolutionary War that I actually had any knowledge of prior to my adult life because I did um, uh, history at school. We focused on the French Revolution. And so in the lead up to how the French Revolution happened, we did a little bit about how France basically supported the American War of Independence and then basically had to argue to its own people why independence was fine for the colonists but we didn't really want it over here um, <laughs> and how that, that basically did for um louis at the time or was one of the contributing factors andy uh jesse's just said he uh, feels like you haven't had a chance to speak for a, a long time have you missed something that you really wanted to say Oh, <laughs> I apologize. You have I'm been very, that. very polite and 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 pretty much edit. You have removed yourself from the narrative. <laughs> I keep seeing his his voice, like his box, blink for a second oh. on Skype and then go away as somebody else talks over him, like I'm doing now. I'm looking at the notes oh. rather than Skype. I'm oh, sorry. Um, and Andy, did you did you miss something that you? Uh, if nothing else, I could put it earlier if it helps. Or no, was no, there anything? Um, yeah. Nothing in particular, you know. Every time I think I'm going to say something, somebody says it in a, in a much more informed way than I would have said it. And so I'm like, oh, well, that, no, I don't need to say that now because somebody said it better than I did. Okay. But, uh, well, yeah. The next no. time you have something, grunt. And I will say, okay. Andy. 
just go. All right. Some just say about Thomas Jefferson. Okay, so. So yeah, Thomas Jefferson kind of becomes the antagonist for this this uh, second half. Like he's the one who's kind of stirring mm-hmm. everything up, and um, th- there are people who are like, "Well, this this vilifies Thomas Jefferson. It makes him look like a complete prick." Uh, your thoughts? I mean, Thomas Jefferson has always been well, not always been, but among historians, he's a bit of a controversial figure mm-hmm. in terms of American politics. You know, some people view him as a, a bit of a hypocrite because he was always. Um, a strict constitutionalist, and he wasn't much for an elastic perspective on the Constitution, yet he did, like, his most famous uh, work as president was doing the Louisiana Purchase, which was uh, a massive investment uh, by the American government in purchasing a ton of land, which is something that Thomas Jefferson himself would have argued against if it was anybody else. So it's it's do as I say not as i do uh, yeah exactly uh, <laughs> <Okay>. thomas <laughs> he's um uh divisive at times i mean for me it's weird because as i offhandedly mentioned during the introductions i'm from virginia young man i'm from virginia so watch your mouth so both of these figures have been deified more so than most americans get like washington's deified across the board but for me it was he was another step above like both washington and jefferson to anybody in virginia can do no wrong and did no wrong so seeing jefferson in this completely different light was a bit of an eye-opener for me Hmm. and i'm totally interested in going and doing more research on it and i'm slowly amassing a book stack of uh, 18th century stuff so the only thing i think is possibly a little bit of a shame about the real life thomas jefferson is i bet he never wore an outfit that fabulous yeah that's also yeah. high levels of groovy well, he spent a lot of time in france yeah so he might have i will just i would just like to say that staging the cabinet meetings between Jefferson and like the debates between Jefferson and Hamilton as actual rap battles was a stroke of genius. Definitely. That was fantastic. There's Um, a, there's actually a video floating around where they were outside the theater and they switched roles. So Miranda did Jefferson's part and David did Hamilton's part and Chris Jackson was still emceeing and he said, you know, David loses a rap battle every night, so we might as well let him win one. <laughs> nice. The street performances actually are something that happens fairly regularly. Like I said, with the um, uh, putting this out to theatres and it not just being for the super elite, the point I was le- leading up to but got distracted uh, by myself was... Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda's always been a fan of lotteries, so he has like a, a, a $10. You put in a Hamilton, and if you are one of the 21 picked out of the bucket, you get to see Hamilton for a Hamilton. Uh, and uh, that that makes it accessible to just regular people who happen to be able to walk past the uh, the theatre at the right time. But they also go out and they do uh, like ham, hashtag ham for ham, where they do like little performances, like exactly what you were saying, like they, the reverse rap battle, or like a Star Trek costume contest just little fun things 
for the public. He's very much got his finger on the pulse of the people. It's not, he has not put himself in an ivory tower and gone, oh, yes, oh, yes, I'm producing entertainment for you. Uh, he's, he's very much... He is, I mean, I'm following him now on Twitter because there's just so much love and passion in this guy. Okay. I, I've got such yeah. respect for him. I think really the reasons why Jefferson is portrayed as such a douchebag in this... Um, and this, I, this, I use this to support my suggestion that a lot of this is actually from Eliza's perspective as she is rewrite, as she is writing this history of her husband. And quite frankly, Jefferson, from her perspective, would have been a douchebag. He made Alexander's life miserable, forced him essentially to work when he should have been spending time with his family, and in many ways predicated what ended up happening with the Reynolds pamphlet. I was just about to say, if it wasn't for him, then the Reynolds pamphlet probably never would have happened. So So if this is from her perspective, and again, her theme keeps popping up even when she's not in the scene, then it makes sense that Jefferson comes off as a bit of a villain. Apparently in real life, uh, Jefferson was not one of the people who confronted Hamilton about the situation which led to the Reynolds pamphlet, but he was told about it by Madison. Madison, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to play you a clip from the audio drama of my fourth book, Arlington. It's set in an alternate 1883, and it's all about the first founder of a National Intelligence Agency of America, a former slave named Thomas. In this clip, Thomas has gone to see Frederick Douglass speak. For time, I'm going to cut Douglass's speech to the end and focus on the dramatic exchange between the two of them. But just like Hamilton, which I was entirely unaware of at the time of writing, I have used the backdrop of history to tell a story that I hope will be relevant now and in future. Kind of wish it wasn't so relevant, actually. It is a dangerous thing to consider oneself wholly morally correct and possessed of unimpeachable judgment. But we can at least be sure of this. The tyranny of men resides not in their social position, but in their manifest mistreatment of those they consider lesser beings. If they lay a hand on you, attempt to make you feel you are lowly, you snatch that hand away with absolute certainty for the freedom of all men from tyranny is a moral right. There was a thunderous applause, and as the congregation were ushered from the church, Thomas waited until the hall was empty and we were alone, before striding up the faded, threadbare carpet running down the center of the pews to greet his mentor. Frederick. Thomas. That was powerful, moving, inspiring stuff. You have not lost your touch. I don't need my ass polished, Thomas. There's a revolution in the air today. I'm just on damage control, same as you. So one friend to another, what do you want? I want you for president. The position of vice president is open right now. You can take it. That puts you in place. That gets people thinking of you as presidential material. Oh. I want you to say yes to this. We need the best leader, and it's you. 
Well, I'm sorry, but I disagree. And I can't. I feel like you haven't even considered this. You answered far too quickly. I have no doubt I would make many happy if I took the highest office. But I fear the outcry and the bloody conflict that would follow the supreme unlikelihood of my winning the popular vote would not be worth the historical precedent. I'm happy to keep cultivating the inspiration from my post. But I'm an old man, Thomas. I'm older than Grant. This country needs a young, dynamic, confident leader. What I just heard back there was from a confident man. I have confidence in my abilities. It's my approach and its usefulness to the American public that I question. Your approach? Thomas, I'm an activist. I thrive on opposition. I see injustice, and it befits my disposition to stand against that. My entire public career is founded upon anger, indignation, protest, agitation. I push against the unacceptable status quo. I can't be the status quo. And I can't be the leader you want. I'm sorry. You have to find someone able to deal in more than simply fire. That is, if you want a balanced leader. Is this about Anna? What about her? You're still in mourning. Thomas. Alright, I think we're done for today. Sergeant Powell, if you could have your men clear a safe path to my coach. Yes, Mr. Douglas. With the greatest of respects, Frederick. Duty to your people must come before personal attachment. What is wrong with you? Our need is dire. Grief cannot stand in the way of progress. That's very easy to say when... When what? One has not experienced the greatest of losses yet. Do you think I find this simple? That I wake every day thrilled at the prospect of millions of people whose lives depend upon the farthest reaches of my decisions. Thomas! I have to push past it every single time. I must switch off more about myself than I leave on. It's not about me and it never was. It's about having the right mind in the right place. Frederick, I'm so sorry. Thomas and I have been working very hard to get the right man into this station. I apologize for his candor and the discomfort this has clearly entailed. No. He may have something there regarding my reasoning. In truth, I've been in the grip of a powerful melancholy without her. And as much as I would cling to my ideals, you are right. There is work afoot. Visit with me tomorrow. This is not the place to discuss the logistics. I do not want the role, nor do I think I would be the choice of the people. But it is they that I must focus on. Thank you for seeing sense. I shall thank you not to mention my wife ever again, unless I do. It was not planned. I apologize. The sounds of screaming could be heard on the wind. The road outside was flocked with people milling about in all directions. The crack of gunshots rang out. Thomas's brow furrowed visibly as Mr. Douglas retrieved and inspected a pocket watch. Noon. I assume the verdict is in. Arlington is available in book form on the Kindle store and in audio drama form on Bandcamp. 
Links in the show notes. A couple of things that did happen, which we can talk about briefly before we go to the spoiler section. Uh, the birth of uh, Philip Hamilton, uh, one of the reasons he's sent back home from the war early by George Washington is because Eliza was expecting, was begging George to send uh, Hamilton home. He ended up going back to the war and uh, conducting the uh, siege at Yorktown. And uh, that that was the deciding victory battle in the uh, the Revolutionary War. There was There were several... It was. It went on for longer than that, but that was the one that turned the tide. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, a lot of emphasis, for obvious reasons, is given to uh, to Philip himself uh, being this um, the apple of his father's eye, and uh, just was it. What's the actual word? Like pride is not the word. Pride is not the pride word, I'm, not looking the word I'm, looking I'm looking for. Looking for it's wonderful, wonderful way of of conveying just. Boundless love, and pride is not pride is not the word I'm looking for. There is so much more inside me now. Yeah. Philip, when you smile, I am undone, my son. Look at my son. Pride is not the word I'm looking for. There is so much more inside me now. Philip, you outshine the morning sun, my son. When you smile, I fall apart, and I thought I was so smart. And uh, also, um, at the end of Act One, before Jefferson arrives, Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay write the Federalist Papers. What well, mostly Hamilton. Um, <laughs> a- another tiny historical inaccuracy: Burr refuses to write that he was never offered in the in the, in the first place. But it's another great way of putting Burr uh, in with playing it safe. Yeah, in with playing it safe. Uh-huh. Uh, also, Burr was not uh, um, Charles Lee's second in the uh, duel between him and John Lawrence. Uh, it was Evan Edwards. But again, you got to keep Burr there because otherwise there's without this slight license uh, with, with history, there's, there's more of a kind of, Oh, this guy again, as opposed to him feeling like he's, you know, running constantly parallel with uh, Alexander. Mm-hmm. Plus then we would have had to ex- introduce Edwards and figure out who else, you know, all of these other people. It's a lot easier just to, to lump it all in as Burr. Yeah, for efficiency's sake. Yeah, and it, it's poetic license. You've kind of got to let a few things slide when you're, you're presenting something like that in this format. I mean, I think one of the things that um, uh, Miranda said in the uh, the making of that we watched was that the the four of them getting together in the bar at the beginning for my shot that you know, to his knowledge, they were never all together in a bar at the same time. But yeah. in order to present that as you know, these are the... It's a great symbolic moment. ...children yeah. of the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you uh-huh. put them all in the same room together. Yeah. If you look at the historical inaccuracies actually at stake, there's not enough to make a child fail a history exam. There's a couple of little things usually to do with character mm-hmm. development. It'll actually become a thing where in, you know, in, in coming years, people, you know, history teachers will circle that with Red Byro and go, nope, that was Hamilton the musical and only Hamilton the musical. Check Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, English teachers have been telling their students you can't just watch Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and expect to pass at an English A level um, for quite some time. So yeah. you know, I'd, it would be nice to think that the majority of students know that you're going to have to do a bit of research beyond just watching the uh, the you know 
cultural interpretation of historical events. Yeah. Maria Reynolds, and I think on the words Maria Reynolds, we're going to have to say no to this, and basically... This is your spoiler warning. This is your spoiler warning, folks. Uh, Let's see. Meanwhile, everybody closes their eyes, shakes their head, and goes, ugh. Um, Okay, right. Uh, I think the the, the next piece of music we're going to play is say no to this, and basically, if you continue to listen to this, this will... Uh, let you in on on the developments that occur in the uh, in the next bit, but basically we're going to talk about uh, end game material next, and uh, I think we've given you guys enough grounding to be able to go listen to uh, Hamilton, or indeed if you're like you know I want to see this thing, I don't want to listen, I want to go see it, mm-hmm. go see it, maybe um, use the lottery four hundred dollars on it, <laughs> yeah, four hundred. Oh, that's lowballing it. Seriously. I'm- so uh, definitely Broadway tickets I went and not looked cheap. at the San Francisco times because oh, that's the closest okay. place for me because they're opening it up in San Francisco mm-hmm. in is like, Lynn Manuel going to be like flying back and forth across the country 2000 miles? oh no he retired he's not he, like yeah, he, he's they've not. replaced him already he's oh. not doing it anywhere this, but there's, they have franchises he, now <laughs> yeah, he had to work for there's, Disney yeah didn't he yeah. There's yeah. there's one in there's the the performances in New York. They're also performing in Chicago, and they're opening up in San Francisco next year. And the tickets are four hundred dollars in San Francisco. Yeah, they are also coming to Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 2018. And I'm just sitting here mm. like, yes. <laughs> That's why the know. filming of the performances was so important. I am so glad mm-hmm. they did that. Anybody, right. any of mm-hmm. you guys like Avenue Q? Oh yeah. Do you really haven't enjoy watching? The, well, exactly. Haven't seen it. Never can now. Yeah. I mean, unless unless there's a, a revival of it. Um, yeah, that, I that, saw that, it in the dinner theater. The, but that wonderful show is gone now yeah. because mm-hmm. they didn't film it. They didn't commit it to DVD. And yeah. you know, I, I can understand why they wouldn't want to scupper their their box office by just putting out a, a, an easy to obtain thing. But if you like, if nothing else, if you're doing like a final run, film that. Preserve I mean, it for all time, because otherwise, no one will ever know what it was like to be there in that theater with those Muppets swearing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, even even when I did theater in high school, we recorded our last, or we clo- we recorded closing night of all of the shows we did. So I've got mm-hmm. records of my performances yeah. in uh, Christmas Carol, and you get your gun, Our Town, Forty Second Street. I've got all records of those, and this was a high school production. It's not that hard. You mount a camera in the back of the room, and it's. <laughs> garbage quality yeah. but hey you've got it you got something mm. yeah. i mean I, I do get the whole thing about you know we don't want people to see this on the screen we want them to come to the theater but i think what the what you're missing if you make that argument is that people who want to come to the theater want to come for the experience to. of being in the theater people who are going to go oh well i'll just watch it when i can see it on screen probably weren't going to bother coming to the theater anyway yeah, most of the people that are going to see it in the theater, they're either going to buy the DVD on the way out or they're going to buy it first and then go see it in the theater. Yeah, yeah. If, I mean, you might even get a few extra people who go, wow, this is amazing. I really want to see this live. This kind of yeah. financial investment, you kind of got to love the show already. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now. So, yeah. yeah, I think those people paying upwards of God knows how much for uh, <laughs> Hamilton tickets are not like, so this Hamilton, what's it all about? They know. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it, I was talking to a, a friend at work who's just been to see um, The Lion King mm. in London that and paid uh, like 120 odd quid for tickets. 
Um, and But The Lion King is running and running and running and running because people know that story. They love that story. They want to go and see that story. Well, that works in the other direction where you've got films being turned into musicals. Mm. And they're like, this is something special to me that I want to see on stage done in this special way. Mm. Shrek the musical, by the way, is a really great way of... Um, like, have you guys, any of you guys seen that? Um, no. I saw yes. it on Netflix. It takes... I, um, <laughs> it takes... I saw a commute. I saw a community production of it. Oh, okay. it, was, it was weird. It takes some <laughs> elements of Shrek and makes them incredibly good. And it takes some elements of Shrek and it makes them feckin' awful to watch. So basically all the, the, the fairy tale creatures singing to each other is awful. All the Fiona yeah. stuff is great. Mm. And the Shrek stuff yeah. somewhere in the middle. Mm. I really like when they do that, though, because that's... Um, what, when they the, bugger things up? No, no, no. For, when for, they, to, to make a musical a roller coaster of troughs and peaks. When they add in stuff that wasn't in the original film yes. that, that enhances it. There's, mm. Like Bingo. you say, there's, there's Fiona's uh, song in um, Shrek the Musical, Shadowlands in um, mm-hmm. the Lion King yeah. stage version, which I know the, the, that kind of existed previously, but it wasn't in the film. Mm. Um, but, oh, well, he lives in you as well. Yeah, um, but it's it's being able to expand on something when you put it into a different medium. Yeah. Okay, so um, you folks go, listen to Hamilton, and then come back. We will continue and finish. There's nothing like summer in the city. Someone under stress meets someone looking pretty. There's trouble in the air, you can smell it And Alexander's by himself I'll let him tell it I hadn't slept in a week I was weak, I was awake You've never seen a bastard orphan More in need of a break Longing for Angelica Missing my wife That's when Miss Mariah Reynolds Walked into my life, she said I know you are a man of honor I'm so sorry to bother you at home But I don't know where to go And I came here all along she said my husband's doing me wrong beating me cheating me mistreating me suddenly he's up and gone i don't have the means to go on so i offered her alone i offered to walk her home she said you're too kind sir i gave her 30 bucks that i had socked away she lived a block away she said this one's mine sir then i said well i should head back home she turned red she led me to a let her legs spread and say Stay Hey Hey That's when I began to pray Lord, show me how to say no to this I don't know how to say no to this But my God, she looks so helpless And her body's saying hell yes No, show me how to say no to this I don't know how to say no to this In my mind, I'm trying to go Then her mouth is on my Time. A month into this endeavor, I received a letter from a Mr. James Reynolds. Even better, it said, 
Dear sir, I hope this letter finds you in good health and in a prosperous enough position to put wealth in the pockets of people like me down on their luck. You see, that was my wife who decided to fall. Uh oh, you made the wrong sucker a cutco. So time to pay the piper for the pants you want buckle. And hey, you can keep seeing my whole wife if the price is right. If not, I'm telling you, your wife. I hit the letter and I raced to a place, screamed, I'll cut you in the face. She said, No. Apologetic, a mess, she looked pathetic, she cried Please don't go, sir So what's your story, you said I don't know about any letters Stop crying, goddammit, get up I didn't know any better I am ruined, please don't leave me with I am helpless. helpless How could I do this? Just give him what he wants and you can help me I don't me. want you Whatever I don't want you Here's a neat little bit of deleted material for those who have now seen or heard the show or would like to know more. It's a song about the second president, the man who followed George Washington, John Adams. And this one got cut down to just the last line because it was a rejoinder from Hamilton to Adams after he was being deeply critical on a personal level with Alexander Hamilton. An open letter to the fat, arrogant, anti-charismatic, national embarrassment known as President John Adams. The man's irrational, he claims that I'm in league with Britain in some vast international intrigue. Bitch, please, you wouldn't know what I'm doing. You're always going berserk, but you never show up to work. Give my regards to Abigail next time you write about my lack of moral compass. At least I do my job up in this rumpus. The line is behind me, I crossed it again. Well, the president lost it again. Oh, such a rough life. Better run to your wife, you're the bosses in Boston again. Let me ask you a question. Who sits at your desk when you're in Massachusetts? You were calling me with sick back in 76, and you haven't done anything new since. You do since, with no sense. You'll die of irrelevance. Go ahead, you can call me the devil. You spot him, I love you. Spot him, malevolence. Say hi to the Jeffersons. And the spies all around me, maybe they can confirm. I don't care if I kill my career with this letter. Confining you to one term. You fat mother. That's that's Sit down, yeah. John. You, you fat, fat mother. mother. But that one's beeped. That one's I know, beeped, and yeah. the beep, the beep <laughs> makes it so much better. Uh-huh. See, I, I could only imagine John Adams there being played by Anthony Hopkins, who played John Adams the second in Amistad. So I was imagining him <laughs> going, "Okay, I'll sit back down again, then, shall I?" Um. <laughs> you be quiet now, John Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Time for your Horlicks, John Adams. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I've broken Sharon again. <laughs> again. <laughs> What's funny about that? It's the... 
this, oh was, this isn't even as funny as the time you impersonated her at the end of the We're Back episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's just this idea. Oh, I'm so glad I was here for this. Oh, God. It's okay. just the idea of George Washington being replaced by this old man who has to be brought all <laughs> <laughs> no one George had no faith in him. <laughs> okay. He's actually secretly in the back making robots. <laughs> <laughs> See, the other thing is, I always oh. get John Adams mixed up with Sam Adams. Then I think, isn't that beer? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> moving on. Let's. Uh, we've already heard say no to this. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. Every, everyone who's, who's now on board has, uh, you know, knows of Hamilton's infidelity. It's that moment of you are gonna regret this so much. And this is the the one point that everything spirals from. It's possible that he might still have opposed Aaron uh, for uh, first president and then um, governor of New York. It was the election in 1800 where Hamilton backed Jefferson instead of Burr, which made Jefferson president and Burr vice president. But it was the 1804 governorship of New York which Burr lost to Morgan Lewis for the same reason that actually caused Burr to eventually challenge Alexander after many heated letters. Notably, Philip was killed in the duel in 1801 after Thomas Jefferson became president, not before. But the first one is really significant, so that's the one that they really focused on to up the drama and heighten the tension. You know, I could have been president, but because of you I wasn't, is so much more of an opportunity lost than just governorship of New York. But it was the layering on effect. The death of uh, Philip stems directly from this. And if you look at the actual chronology, it's really, it's an odd situation because... um, uh, Philip was born in, in 82. Uh, Hamilton first conducts his affair with uh, Mariah Reynolds in 91. So Philip would have been nine years old at that point. So that's the, the point where he's like, My name is Philip. I am a poet. I wrote this poem just to show it. And I just turned nine. You can write rhymes, but you can't write mine. That point. So Hamilton (laughs) Hamilton first conducts his affair with Maria Reynolds in uh, 1791. He's confronted almost immediately over the the possible speculation by James Monroe and Frederick Muhlenberg, who's never mentioned in the play, but not Burr and not Jefferson, although Jefferson was told about it by James Monroe. They basically kind of, they established what it was, he set them straight, and then it lay. It lay for many, many years. I believe he continued conducting the affair for a year. Uh, So he may have actually carried on after they confronted him for a little bit. Uh, Then he uh, resigned as Secretary of Treasury after five years. Uh, He was not fired by John Adams in um, 1794. So that was three years after the affair started. Then Washington steps down and John Adams was elected in 1796. Then in 1797, six years after... The affair started, and nearly six years after he was approached and confronted, uh, a journalist named uh, James Callender broke the story. This is something that was it was told to him, I believe, again, I believe, by um, Loose Lips Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this, basically, um, Hamilton had been, like, keeping this from everyone for all of this time, well, six years, and then he immediately published the Reynolds pamphlet after that. 
Thomas Jefferson was elected third president in 1800. That actually happens after the uh, the death of Philip in the uh, in the play, because in 1801 Philip was killed in a duel for his father's honor. In the play, it's the Count of Seven. In reality, apparently neither of them fired for a minute. So it was like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then they stared at each other. Neither of them drew their pistol upwards, and then eventually. Uh, the uh, Philip's opponent lifted his pistol. But Philip did get a shot off, but he may have been an involuntary reaction from being shot. But 1801, that's 10 years after the affair, and it's four years after the Reynolds pamphlet. And even in the play, there's a certain amount of... He besmirched Your Honour because he was... Uh, uh, this took... The actual duel took place in, like, November of 1801 because this uh, this guy was doing his 4th of July speech. July through November, Philip fostered this resentment. You badmouthed my father. George Eker. Whatever the badmouthing was... If it's to do with the infidelity, it's something that's public knowledge. I was going to say, this is a matter of public yeah. record. You can't say it didn't so, happen. Apparently, George Eker was a supporter of Aaron Burr and made a speech denigrating Alexander Hamilton. And Philip and his friend Richard Price confronted Eker in November, four months later, and Eker called them damned rascals. So they both challenged him to a duel. Apparently, there were, in fact, two duels. First duel, shots were exchanged, but neither party was injured. That should have been it. That was your sign. The following day, they had a second duel, and Ika fatally shot the 19-year-old Philip Hamilton. Apparently, allegedly, uh, Philip talked with uh, Alexander, and and he was given the advice to fire into the air. At no point does Alexander say, Son, what are you doing defending the honour of a man you know has honour? Please, please, please do not endanger your life for me on this scenario. They don't make enough of a big deal of the fact that Hamilton doesn't do that or didn't do that. Because that would be his great, great regret. Mm. That that his son actually came to him saying, I'm going to do this, and he let it happen. he never said, don't do it. He never said, for the love of God, don't do this. It's alluded to very, very briefly when Eliza says, did you know? Hmm. And uh, I don't think he responds. Yeah. Um, but like either way you swing it, in real life or in the play, it was a point where Hamilton would have had the ability to say no. But the dueling aspect is a huge part of that society. That's why they made, went to great pains to explain the Ten Commandments. It was all about having the courage of your convictions, having all of these steps to actually uh, end the conflict, but having this this death threat at the end just showed that you had such strengthen your beliefs that you were willing to die for them it's foolish from this perspective but people are dying for dumber things right now mm-hmm. in less organized ways yeah. with less it's fail safes it's worth noting that you're talking about hamilton having the opportunity to end this or to put a stop to it or to set, tell philip not to go through with it mm. that's exactly what washington did when yeah. Hamilton was wanted to do a Lee earlier in the beginning. And yeah. Washington said, my name's been through a lot. I can take this. Don't do this on my behalf. And they go and do it anyway. And then, you know, however many years later, Philip comes along doing pretty much the exact same thing, saying, this guy's talking shit about you. I need to put a stop to it. Hamilton has the opportunity to be Washington and to say, 
don't do this. My name's already been through a whole lot. Yeah. I, I can live with this. Don't put yourself at risk on my behalf and chooses not to and instead lets his son go off and get killed. Mm. Which has kind of been signaled in his conversation with Washington because when Washington says to him, my name can take this, Hamilton effectively says to him, well, mine can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sh- the show was critiqued for uh, its simplistic depiction of Hamilton and the vilification of Jefferson. Joanne B. Freeman, who notably does not have her own Wikipedia page, professor of history and American studies at Yale, uh, writes, The real Hamilton was a mass of contradictions, an em- uh, immigrant who sometimes distrusted immigrants, a revolutionary who places supreme value on law and order, a man who distrusted the ramp- rumblings of the masses, yet preached his politics to them, more frequently and passionately than many of his more democracy-friendly fellows. Um, I think she's missing the point that he does really come across as flawed and contradictory over and over yeah. again and prideful uh-huh. when he doesn't need to be prideful. <clears throat> and in this case, allowing his son to go through with that was a, a terrible, regrettable act of pride. Mm. It's worth noting, Absolutely. by the way, that I, I think the phrase massive contradictions appears in the play. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. He says it about the, uh, the Constitution. The Constitution. Um, and Hamilton's response is, well, so's uh, independence. Independence. Yeah. Yeah. So is independence. Yeah. So something being a mass of contradictions <clears throat> doesn't necessarily mean you can't present it in this way. Uh, but yeah, the, the Philip Hamilton, uh, the, the, the trifecta of take a break uh, where you actually re- you know, get to know Philip as a child, then blow us all away. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's, it's four. Uh, then stay alive and it's quiet uptown. Just that passage slays me. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It's um, so sad. And it's, uh, it's possibly because It's Quiet Uptown doesn't go for melodrama. It's, it's, it's very simple. Yeah. It's very much, it's, it's telling the story of a man who is going through something that, as they point out, is unimaginable. And you would know this is the parrot more than I would that you know the idea of losing your child that's something that most people cannot understand mm. and eventually finding a little bit of light in the world mm. it, but it's also something that happens way more often than people like to think that it does mm. yeah. at this time period it was customary to lose your children before they reached adulthood absolutely you know not even not even that long ago people were having significantly large families because they knew that the chances were at least two or three of these kids weren't going to see double figures. There is a lovely humanising moment uh, for Aaron. Um, uh, Dear Theodosia? Theodosia. Theodosia. um, Where he's writing to his daughter, who was named Theodosia after her mother, who had just recently died of uh, illness, leaving her effectively with one parent, which... If you don't have that, that line at the end, I will not let this man uh, make my daughter an orphan, doesn't have the impact. But it it just hits you right mm-hmm. in the gut at that point because you've had Aaron's love for his daughter expressed that he, you know, that <laughs> it, it's paralleled with Aaron, uh, with it's paralleled with Alexander and, and Philip and, and just that they have such hopes for their children. They want their children to be better than they are. Yeah. It's uh, um, not mentioned in the play, but uh, Aaron Bird did lose Theodosia shortly after what would have been the events of the play. Oh. Uh, she was out at sea with her fiancé, and the ship just went missing. Oh. 
Oh wow! There's such a sense of defeat about uh, Aaron. Mm-hmm. If you if you look read up mm-hmm. on his life after this scenario, it ruined him. I think mean, Washington says you're dying is easy, living is hard. That's that's yeah. he's outlining that Hamilton gets to just boom, he's straight out of it. If it's not even so much living, Aaron Burr lingers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he becomes a ghost of himself. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he lived until uh, 1836, so since the actual duel takes place in 1804, that's 32 years of um, just hanging around the planet. And he remarried, like he got a second wife after uh, you know, living for decades alone, a woman named Eliza. Three years before his death. Oh. It's, uh, uh, oh. Yeah. It was Eliza Jumel. Also, the role of United States Senator of New York, uh, which he took from Philip Schuyler, was later reclaimed by Philip Schuyler. The same man, father of... Angelica, Peggy, Eliza. One thing um, that's... Um, I think it's particularly important about Philip, and again, this is something that happens in the music. This would be Philip Hamilton again, the eldest son of Alexander, killed in the duel, clearly named after Philip Schuyler, his grandfather. When they talk about how he keeps getting it wrong when his mother's teaching him the piano, mm-hmm. it's because she is starting in one particular key, and he starts in a minor key, and then his part of the singing modulates into a major key at the end to harmonize with her. Hmm. And basically it's one of those, she wants him to always be in this key. And instead he starts low and then kind of brings it up. And it shows that his character is very much the thing that kind of brings happiness into this couple's life. He is there to harmonize and to uh, uplift everything at the end. Yeah. Good. When they talk about that when he dies, too, she <laughs> keeps telling to him, you always used to change the key, or you used to change the tone, the note, something yeah. like that. Mm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, that actually plays in at the to the end of the play, which again when we get there I'll talk about it. But that links back to the very first song in many ways. Uh, a year after um, Philip was uh, uh, killed, uh, they Eliza had the last <coughs> child she was going to have with Alexander in 1802, who they also called Philip Hamilton, which led to some confusion regarding how many children they had. He was called Little Philip, and he lived. 82 years till 1884, so uh, he got to see the world overrun with Wendigos. Yeah. <laughs> but, Are you going to bring Philip Hamilton into uh, into your stories, Alex? N- hmm. Well, he is now. <laughs> Can Steamheart be a hip-hopper? It, uh, in all oh seriousness, God. it's not actually that silly a question. Simply, am I going? What am I going to draw from this that I am going to try my best not to replicate one to one? What am I going to be inspired by in this? Because there's so much. Yeah. Dramatically speaking, some of the sharpest points are going to be sticking in me for the rest of my life. There are some films and some stories and some books and some 
plays that just live with you. And as a writer, it's impossible when you're... Uh, like somebody said that they, they'd uh, noticed the, um, uh, the reference to uh, Order of the Phoenix in uh, episode 21 of The Princess Thieves, which it's, it's the I feel sorry for you moment. And that actually, is, it's in a completely different context. Harry saying that to Voldemort um, is, is his way of defeating Voldemort. But in, in this case, it almost gets Gwen killed. But at the same time, the root is there. That moment stuck there in my head and my creative endeavors like sort of take that and subvert it and the best i can really do is try to make the next step in the same way that uh lin manuel miranda is taking what howard ashman did with music and just going to the next level with it which is really the best i think that's the best for for artists to do because the the idea of pursuing wholly original art is ludicrous now because everyone's been influenced in some capacity if you're able to make something that feels like it it wasn't stemming from anything well done but it's from something even if it's from something that actually happened to you creators need clay we can probably talk about eliza here we've we've held back on her but there's a her her, her major song is probably burn it's uh, uh-huh. it's a dramatic recreation of, of what might have uh, gone through Eliza's mind at the uh, point she found out about the infidelity during the uh, the Reynolds pamphlets publication, and it's so soulfully sung and so relevant, and it feels like this could happen to anyone, male or female, right now. And that's th- one of the brilliant aspects about Hamilton is that uh-huh. it feels like this is almost a soap opera playing out. that that cheapens the hell out of it but there's a reason soap operas have always been popular even if they are the basis of something that's much larger is that they take very human very relatable scenarios and put them up there in a historic context i think very particularly though in this this being told this way at this particular time the reynolds pamphlet was unusual and weirded people out also because hamilton was so open and so honest and that was so unusual for somebody who'd been involved in a scandal to basically just turn around and go right that's what happened um and basically give people way more information than they actually wanted Mm. um (laughs) he bombarded them with facts exactly and and actually eliza's response of no response would probably have been the more common reaction at the time. Mm. But you move that up to today, celebrity gets caught in sex scandal, everybody wants all the details, and more importantly, everybody wants their partner's reaction. What do you think? Mike's getting shoved in their face. Tell us how you feel. Spill to us the beans about how heartbroken you are right now. I don't know how we roll the clock back on that. I don't know how we become less fascinated in the private lives of other people. Destroy the internet. Destroy the human race. Start from scratch. Unfortunately, and fortunately, already on track. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, fortunately, that's that's less likely, and we can live with fascination with people's private lives and just exercise a little bit of fucking discretion. Mm. But ultimately, I think that 
that portrayal of, as you say, the speculation on how Eliza might have felt and that it's woven in with this idea that she is deliberately depriving history of her reaction Mm. and not only of her reaction to that situation but also to the story of their relationship before that point as well. By burning all of their, uh, their personal letters, she's basically saying, right, whoever wants to know anything about Um, Alexander Hamilton now, what you get is the public version of himself that he has chosen to put forward. You don't get the private version of him that I had. You forfeit the rights. Yeah. It's all I, it's all I have left of him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The only part of him that's mine. Mm, And it's a direct Um, reaction to Alexander's lust to be written, carved in stone and to actually leave this legacy. It's not even, it, it doesn't feel like arrogance so much that the way it's portrayed it's just he's got this drive to to make a mark not just to make a mm-hmm. mark either but and to, to affect. have to have the control over it that he gets to choose the mark he makes and that's what washington was trying to warn him about you don't get to choose that and so much of what he really did that actually had a hugely positive benefit is all the boring stuff that most people don't want to know about the economy stuff the like basically working out how the hell they could financially survive oh, in the country. Oh, they want to know about it now. It's all gone <laughs> yeah. tits up. So, Hamilton, could you give us a few tips? Yeah, flipping, bring it back to life so we can fix it all again. Some major smelling salts. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I do find it of note that the the idea of the Reynolds pamphlet, to do that today almost seems like it would be it would be a sensible thing. He's getting out in front of the scandal. It's It's he's making a statement saying this is what happened this is how i feel about it and again if you were to do that right now that would make sense and that might even diffuse some of the you know some of the internet scandal because they couldn't go digging and find anything else but back then when we didn't live in a world where information was so easily obtainable and anybody could be an investigative journalist releasing that much information to Sharon's point is just, it was ludicrous and, and nobody, it, it just freaked everyone out. Editor's side note, by the way, I am sorry that Jesse sounds very muffled a lot during this episode. He was spiking like crazy and it was very, very difficult to listen to. So I had to take the edge off that, which unfortunately made him muffled. It was that or lose him altogether. And he said some great stuff. Whereas, you know, like I said, I guess my, my point was that right now, that would be a normal and, ex- and and very sensible thing to do would be to get out ahead of it and to release a statement. Yeah, see? Mm. Although I think you'd still get people today who would basically say, well, that's just odd. Nobody washes their dirty linen in public quite so. If you go back to the most recent, like, really memorable sex scandal with a politician that that really shook the world and made them obsessed with a blue dress... Um, it's Clinton uh, won. And had he basically bombarded the world with facts in a very down-to-earth, very frank paper, I think people might have had a little bit more respect for him, but there was this kind of chicanery mm-hmm. of, well, I did not inhale and I didn't actually have sex with her because technically that with the cigar is not sex. So semantic yeah, argument. What the meaning of is, is. Yeah. 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 At the same time, it was being blown so out of proportion. Clinton damn near got impeached for what? For what? Lied about a blowjob so his wife wouldn't find out. Is that against the law? 
Do you need the Supreme Court for that one? You could have took that one to the People's Court. Judge Judy, she'd have knocked it out in a half hour plus commercials. What the f did Clinton do? They was charging him with shit I didn't even know was crimes. Like, oh, you got us some gifts. So what? It got us some gifts. That's his friend. You can't buy your friend a gift. Try to get a job. Try to get a job. You can't get your friend a job. She, eighty percent of people in this room got their job because a friend recommended them. against the law to get your friend a job? Shit, she blew him for a couple of months. The least he could do is give a recommendation. But the, I think you, you're right with that parallel because um, the, what they, if I remember rightly, and it was quite a while ago, um, what they were hauling it into court over the possibly pretended concern was that if she'd been uh, involved with him on such an intimate level, had she been party to any um, state secrets? Was there anything that had untoward that had gone on that they needed to investigate? Bear in mind, this and was the era the... where they banned Furbies from the White House. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, True I mean, story, smart they decision. did. Mm. I know, smart decision. Those things are creepy as hell. Oh yeah, they could have evolved. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and gone feral. And what Hamilton's scandal gets uh, pulled out front and centre over is the idea that he's, you know, we, we found that you were paying out this money that you can't account for. You need to prove to us that that's not government funds mm. and you haven't been using it for untoward reasons and and speculating in private business interests <clears throat> because that's, you can't <clears throat> do that as a politician, as a public figure. It's not allowed. It's an immediately sackable offence <clears throat> if it is seen to be apparent and obvious and blatant. Yes, Yes. Anyway. So. Giant talking orange, we're looking at you. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, he oh. is. He's the annoying orange. Oh, I thought of that. <laughs> know your memes. That oh. was years ago. Sorry. Hey, He's a poison hey, Apple. Setsuma. Hey, look at my hands. Look at my hands, Apple. Look at my hands. <laughs> They're so big. Bigly hands. <laughs> They're huge hands, Apple. Huge. <laughs> Anyway, bringing it back. Oh, that's going to help. Bringing it back. Uh, yeah. We've already talked about the idea of, of Aaron living. The final song, and they do this frequently in really good musicals, it's where all the other songs kind of like blend in together to become this, this sort of rousing chorus. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a, t- a two, two songs together. The, the world was wide enough and who lives, who dies, who tells your story. It's got, I do not know because I don't know what actually goes on on the stage but it's very audibly evocative. And I do know that when uh, Hamilton's life is flashing before his eyes, the various people he's met pass in front of him and, you know, culminating in Eliza. That's, it's you, just, it's wonderful direction. Do you want to oh, know yeah. what oh, happens yeah, on no. stage? Yeah, tell us. All right. So um, it starts with the duel and they're on opposite sides of the stage. And then when the time freezes, mm-hmm. uh, the stage has rotating rings on it. So it starts spinning around and Hamilton standing there in place with his gun um, watching as some of the company are carrying one person across the stage like 
like the bullet in mm-hmm. slow motion, and mm-hmm. he's just soliloquizing as he's watching the bullet come closer and closer to him as the stage is spinning around. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> nice. And it's got to be perfectly timed, of course, because ultimately, yeah. otherwise, you have to hold the bullet in place for a second. But it's, well, I, yeah, with every other he's... note in this being absolutely perfect, it would be perfectly mm-hmm. timed. Mm. That's that's yeah. how mm-hmm. they do jewels. I'm gonna hold this bullet in place, and you run at it really fast. <laughs> yeah. Economic jewel. We want to save on gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, the British uh, tax that. One thing I really want to uh, insert really quick, going back to Burn for a second, that is just really really cool, and I want to share this. Mm-hmm. So, the music in the background of Burn is two themes that we've heard before already um, that have been uh, changed. Mm-hmm. One of them is the Alexander Hamilton theme. The uh, How does the bastard, orphan, immigrant, decorated war vet unite the colonies through more debt? Fight the other founding fathers till he has to forfeit. Have it all, lose it all. You ready for more yet? It's that, and mm-hmm. it's the pentatonic runs from Satisfied. Mm-hmm. All right, all right, that's what I'm talking about. Now, everyone, give it up for the maid of honor, Angelica Skylar. So you have the theme that talks about narrative drive and Eliza specifically removing herself from the narrative. Then you have the one about familial obligation. And the thing with the pentatonic runs, though, is that they're in a minor key this time, as opposed to feeling an obligation to preserve her husband's legacy she's doing something for herself now she's ignoring that obligation Hmm. I saved every letter you wrote me from the moment I read them I knew you were mine you said you were mine I thought you were mine Angelica said when we saw your first letter arrive She said, be careful with that one, love He will do what it takes to survive You and your words flooded my senses Your sentences left me defenseless You built me palaces out of paragraphs You built cathedrals Searching and scanning for answers in every line For some kind of sign And when you were mine The world seemed to burn Burn You published the letters she wrote you How you brought this girl into our bed In clearing your name You have ruined our lives Do you know what Angelica said When she read what you'd done She said You've married an Icarus He's flown too close to the sun You and your words Obsessed with your legacy Your sentences border on senseless And you are paranoid in every paragraph How they perceive you You, you, you I'm erasing myself from the narrative 
Let future historians wonder how Eliza reacted when you broke her heart. You have torn it all apart. I'm watching it burn. Watching it burn. The world has no right to my heart. The world has no place in our bed. To know what I said I'm burning the memories Burning the letters That might have redeemed you You forfeit all rights to my heart You forfeit the place in our bed You'll sleep in your office instead Without me the memories Of when you were I will say that one of the weaknesses of listening to this is that it ends on Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? End. And what you need at that point is to be able to stand up in riotous applause with everyone around you and just show how much you love what you just saw and have the actors come out and bow to you. And you don't get that listening to it. It just stops. And we've listened to it twice now. And both times I put on the uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda version of You're Welcome just as a <laughs> cool-down track. Because you're yeah. left on such a moment of heartache and bittersweet reflection. You need that release. That's one of the uh-huh. things that being in a theater really has, especially especially over cinema. I don't know if like it's this it's, it's different in America because in America people applaud. In the UK, we don't applaud for anything. We don't we're like we at the Queen's Jubilee we might. But like if you go to see uh say Return of the King and there are people in the audience just in floods who just want to stand up and clap, they can't because everyone's like I got to go to the car park. Because other people just don't give a toss. They were just here seeing a movie. You're not like that if you pay top dollar to see a theatre production. You respect that the people on stage need that applause. You need to give it. They need to take it. That's one of the reasons that I I embrace theatre. It, it's such. A, it's a very visceral experience being in a, a theatre mm. audience, and it, it it frustrates me a little bit because. I do have such emotional responses to films and because in this country any emotional display outside the privacy of your own home is kind of looked askance on. I mean, I I will sit in a cinema and cry and people around me will look at me weird like I'm, I don't know... American? ...doing bad things to small children. It's especially looked askance (laughs) by people who are flying by the seat of their pants. Well, yes... Indeed, um, but uh, but yeah, this this I know it's a bit of a stereotype, but British people 
are often Miserable really bastards. bad at just expressing any kind of emotion. <laughs> not even just like negative emotion. You do, you're not allowed to be happy out in public either. Oh, you can get drunk and be happy. You can, get, you can go yes. if you're drunk. That's approved. Or if some kind of sporting event is involved. Oh, you if can there's be a as sports ball. As you like. Oh, you can get emotional if there's yeah. a sports ball. But the rest of it, you know, mm. it's incredibly moving performance over grief of a small child on screen no that's not allowed. someone will titter behind you and you're yeah. like would you f- are you kidding well, me yeah see you think it's that, that it's really not i ugly cried through the entirety of silence and i got weird looks from everybody in the theater the <laughs> most you get over here is like polite applause at the end of a really good movie and then people just get up and leave mm. like uh-huh. keep in mind people still don't understand to sit through marvel credits yeah, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Let, let us close this one down. Has anyone got anything else to say about Hamilton? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and we I, I, always I, I, will, <laughs> and that is the thing. It is something that will just keep going. Yeah. No, it's, I'll, I'll try to keep this short, but this is something I've been waiting for since the very beginning of this podcast. Mm, okay. So, at the very end, when... Uh, what's up? <clears throat> When Eliza puts herself back in the narrative, that is the exact same uh, chord progression as in Alexander Hamilton at the beginning, but it has been rearranged so that it's the same chords, but they're in a different order so that now it's a major key as opposed to a minor key. It started in a minor key, it ended in a major key, exactly the way that Philip always starts in a minor key and somehow manages to end in a major key to end up like his mother. Which is why I think that Eliza is the storyteller, whether we see her there or not, because the play is doing exactly what her son did with her. So that who lives, who dies, who tells your story, the answer is basically, if you have someone that close to you who actually is able to, if you have done great things and you have someone who is able to support you through that greatness, they will be the one. Yes. So the best you have in terms of control over who tells your story and how your story is told is to have somebody that you are close to enough and kind to enough that they will treat you with closeness and kindness after you've gone. Somebody invested in you. Yeah. If anything, our legacy is the people who we have touched, not the things that we have left behind. Not streets named after you or banks. It's our loved ones mm. so if you piss off your kids your biography is going to be hellish yeah pretty much don't do that mm. or non-existent yeah that's why the choice at the end for eliza to forgive alexander after the infidelity after indirectly killing their son it it hits like a freight train mm. yeah that's, that's um that's somewhere in the middle of um uh, quiet uptown, isn't it? That mm. it's just the word forgiveness mm-hmm. is that moment. Mm. I do. I like the fact that it's it's quiet, though. I like the fact that it's not this big dramatic declaration where he falls on his knees and rends his garments and begs her to. Howard Ashman. It's not. I'm so sad about this. Les miserables. Yeah. It's. <laughs> I want to be where the people are. It's quiet uptown is that sensibility. Mm. But also how that forgiveness comes about is that he stays and he's there and he's enough and she's enough. 
and eventually she put she is able to put her pain and her grief aside because of the everyday love and the everyday care not because of some dramatic grand gesture sidebar i have huge respect for these uh, people as songsmiths as wordsmiths as performers and no matter how good i am at, at if i learn to rap i'm pretty lyrical at times myself but there's one thing i won't be able to do really on stage live and that is to keep my composure during something like quiet uptown i would not be able mm-hmm. to sing that song if i was performing yeah. as hamilton i'd break down to pieces i can't sing under pressure on rock band i couldn't before bowie died <laughs> you certainly can't i now. certainly can't I, now I I, I, I I every few months i go let's see if i can sing it nope nope still not nope. happening <laughs> and i get through the first like half first and it's like nope i'm just gonna <clears throat> we're losing points here but just gonna mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, I'm i have a friend who that's my favorite song sharing you go I'm quite similar in terms of my favourite musicals are the ones that I can't actually sing along with because I tear up and choke up and and this and Man of La Mancha, just no. The irony is you need that emotion to sing the song. You need it to well up inside you so that you can let it out. Mm. But part of being trained in singing is to be able to channel that emotion and direct it and not let it take you down and, and overwhelm you. And that is training I do not have. Okay, anything else? else? Then I think we're done. Um, God, I love this show. Yes, my God. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Last night, at this time, we weren't going to be doing a Hamilton show. And then at four in the morning, we were suddenly going to be doing a Hamilton show. Because I woke up and I was like, we got to do Hamilton. And then I couldn't get back to sleep. (laughs) <laughs> I was crawling into bed and I get the tweet from from you. I'm like, what are you still doing up? Well, I, it's, it's, it's I did night. go yeah. to bed. It was just waking up and just head, mm. head pain. This and... happens, folks, quite a lot. Alex will wake <laughs> up in the early hours of the morning with sudden creative ideas mm. and headaches. <laughs> yeah, I do identify very strongly with uh, not even necessarily every facet of the man, but um, clearly Lin-Emmanuel Miranda has this drive and this, I mean, he's so much sunnier than I am, but there's that, and then there's Hamilton himself. Um, this speaks to me on a very deep level. But similarly, uh, watch Amadeus, folks, because I'm just, I'm watching this crude, disrespectful young Mozart <laughs> just producing stuff that I wish I could equal. At my best when I'm podcasting about movies and I can actually evoke an emotional response from you guys with how I put the podcast together. That has always been me approaching critiquing in a way that incorporates artistic expression. If it's designed to evoke an emotion, not even to evoke an emotion, to convey an emotion which you then share... It goes beyond assessing whether a movie is good or bad. At my best, while constructing the New Century audio dramas, when I'm assembling the best parts of the best readings from my best actors, whom I've given my best lines to, blending in music, ambience, sound effects, getting the timing between every line exactly right to maximise drama, humour, heartache, clarity, 
weaving 10,000 sounds into a complex sequence that eventually becomes one of the stories I will tell. That makes me feel less like a writer, less like an editor, less like a podcaster, more like a composer. And I aspire to the sky and follow the smoke trails of those who have reached it before me. Right, I think we're done. Uh, we'll finish yeah, yeah. on uh, the uh, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. Uh, anything else before yeah. we go? Because this is slippery. Um, um, I'll thank you all, if, if that's cool with you guys. Oh, yep, yes. Okay, right. I just, I just want to say thank, thank you. you, Alex, for having us on here. There are very few things that will, like you said, you know, you weren't going to do this before this time yesterday, and I had a lot of other things I was going to do today, but this is something where, you know, do you want to, sit for two and a half hours and talk about Hamilton. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Before you get to the end yeah. of the sentence, yes. yes. Straight away. Yeah. Treasury of State. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. I, I, I would like to uh, to thank all of you guys for, uh, for for coming on because if it had just been me and Sharon talking about it, we wouldn't have got any of the insight that you guys brought to this. It would just have been... It would have been half as long because it would just have been our insight. If, uh, if that... It would, we'd have been done doing a lot of uh, thinking on our feet and, and uh, filibustering. So, Andy Rodriguez, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. Uh, uh, Jesse Ferguson, thank you. Thank you. Harrison Brockwell, thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. And Karu Nagisa, thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. And most of all, Sharon, thank you for sharing this with me and for taking it on board. I was like, right, we're going to listen to Hamilton. And you were like, oh, we are, are we? Yes, yes, we are. And uh, <laughs> grabbed it with both hands. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for putting me in front of it and putting it on my iPod and playing it mm. last night and yep. today. And, and repeatedly and over yes, and over again until our heads fall off. <laughs> yeah. I will continue to sing it at you. Mm. Um, and uh, to all you folks... Uh, <laughs> to all you folks at home who had never really heard of or gotten into Hamilton before listening to this show, I'd just like to say, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, are you going to close out the whole thing with your welcome? I think so. Yeah. Oh, see what's happening here. Are we Probably going wise. to face to face with greatness and it's Are we going to let people Don't commission shows on musicals if they think. also want to include money for tickets? Bloody <laughs> <laughs> hell. That's Alex, gonna get expensive, Alex, folks. Yep. What if I commission a show on a musical anime? Uh, ah! No anime! No anime! One thousand dollars. How Perhaps. many times? Is there a musical anime? Probably. I, I Almost certainly, yeah. Is it, is that, I'm, I'm sure we could find one. There's sports anime. There's probably musical anime. Okay. Anyways. Folks, if you know that there's musical anime, please don't write in to tell us about it. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, thank you very much, guys, for coming on. This has been absolutely wonderful. No problem. Uh, thank okay. you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Right. I see what's happening, yeah. The 
face to face with greatness and a strange You don't even know how you feel It's adorable It's nice to see that humans never change Open your eyes, let's begin Yes, it's really me Breathe it in I know it's a lot The hair is a vibe When you're staring at a demigod So what can I say except You're welcome For the tide, the sun, the sky Hey, it's okay, it's okay You're welcome I'm just an ordinary Jimmy guy What can I say except you're welcome For the tide, the sun, the sky Hey, it's okay, it's okay You're welcome Honestly, I could go on and on I could explain every natural phenomenon The tide, the grass, the ground Oh, that was me, I was messing around I killed a snake, I buried its guts Sprouted a tree, now you got coconuts What's the lesson? What is the takeaway? Don't mess with Maui when he's on a breakaway And the tapestry here in my skin Is a map of the victories I win Look where I've been, I make everything happen Look at that mean mini Maui Just tickety-tap and singing and scratch And flipping and snap And people are clapping Hearing me rap And bring the chorus back and can't resist putting in one last thing and it's the performance in the White House just days before Barack Obama left of George Washington stepping down from his presidency and it's worth watching the YouTube video of this one because people people singing were in tears let alone the people in the room one last time Mr. President you asked to see me I know you're busy what do you need sir sir I want to give you a word of warning. Sir, I don't know what you heard, but whatever it is, Jefferson started it. Thomas Jefferson resigned this morning. You're kidding. I need a favor. Whatever you say, sir, Jefferson will pay for his behavior. Talk less. I'll use the press. I'll write under a pseudonym. You'll see what I can do to him. I need you to draft an address. Yes, he resigned. You can finally speak your mind. No. He's stepping down so he can run for president. <laughs> Good luck defeating you, sir. I'm stepping down. I'm not running for president. I'm sorry, what? One last time. Relax. Have a drink with me. One last time. Let's take a break tonight. And then we'll teach him how to say goodbye. To say goodbye. You and I. No, sir, why? I want to talk about neutrality, sir, with Britain and France on the verge of war. Is this the best I time? want to warn against partisan fighting, but pick up a pen, start writing. I want to talk about what I have learned, the hard-won wisdom I have earned. As far as the people are concerned, you have to serve. You could continue to serve. No. One last time, the people will hear from me. One last time And if we get this right We're gonna teach them 
how to say goodbye You and I Mr. President, they will say you're weak no. They will see we're strong Your position is so unique So I'll use it to move them along Why do you have to say goodbye? If I say goodbye, the nation learns to move on Under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. They'll be safe in the nation we've made. I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree, a moment alone in the shade. At home in this nation we've made. One last time. So, in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will view them with indulgence. After 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as I myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promised myself to realize the sweet enjoyment of partaking. In the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever favored object of my heart, the reward is I trust of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers.
Thank you so much, everybody.